This may sound strange, but to crime scene investigators, there's something peaceful about working with the dead. No matter how a victim's life ended, they all have a story to tell. That is, if somebody is willing to listen. For more than 30 years, Howie Ryan has been that guy. Most of that time as a state police crime scene investigator. Today, he is a crime scene reconstruction consultant and expert witness and teacher of state-of-the-art forensic techniques to law enforcement agencies worldwide. He has worked scenes you wouldn't want to experience in your worst nightmare. This podcast series will pull back the sheet on what really happens in the world of forensic investigations. It's not like what you see on TV. So hold on tight as we take a walkthrough of some gruesome crime scenes and controversial cases, many of which are too brutal for most people to imagine, and sometimes even for the experts. Join Howard Ryan and his guest experts from around the world for a no-nonsense ringside seat as they take you Under the Yellow Tape. Under the Yellow Tape podcast is brought to you in part this week by Highlands Forensic Investigations and Consulting. Let us be your guide from crime scene to courtroom. Also brought to you by CRG Plans. CRG, Critical Response Group, making our world safer each day. If you're a parent with school-aged children from kindergarten to university, take a look at CRG Plans and see how they're making the world safer for you, your family, your children, in your community. That's crgplans.com. Now let's get to it. Hey everybody, welcome back to Under the Yellow Tape. I'm your host, Howie Ryan. In this episode, what we're going to do is pick up where we left off. In the previous two episodes, we talked at length about the murder of Ryan Poston. Today, what we're going to do is we're going to break into the actual preparation for the trial, the trial of Shaney Hubers. It's a, it's a complicated matter, and one of the things I, I mentioned in the very end of the last episode was how difficult it is to present a murder trial, how difficult a task it can be for a prosecuting attorney. And um, the reason why is there's so many pieces that have to go together. And they have to be presented in a specific way within the rules of the court and the r- rules of evidence. And um, it can be very difficult. You have to manage your witnesses. You got to get them lined up. You got to find out what, uh, what they know, what they're going to say, what they can contribute to your case. And in what order you want to present it so you can present in a manner to the jurors uh, in a way that they can understand it the best and give them the best opportunity to make a good, informed decision. And ultimately, what you're looking for is justice, the truth. Most of that occurs during the investigation, obviously. But when you get to that point where you tell the jury, one of the things we talk about quite often in classes we teach is, look, the jury is what matters. The jury is the part that actually matters. They are the ones that are going to make the ultimate decision. So you have to make sure they understand it. You have to deliver your story. It's not a matter of just getting up there and saying it and blurting it out. It's your job as a professional witness to make sure they understand it. And um, that can be a difficult thing. And, it's, and it can be a very difficult thing for the, for the prosecution, the prosecuting attorneys to put together and present in an organized manner. 
in this particular case, they had several witnesses they had to line up. They had to go back into this, the life of both Ryan Poston and Shana Hubers and find out what their relationship was like. Uh, they had to find people that could comment on that and, and in, a, in a relevant way where it led up, you know, there were matters that leading up to that, that night of that fatal encounter. And um, then you're dealing, obviously, with the scene. And you're dealing with your police officers, your investigators, your detectives, uh, your crime scene detectives, and your laboratory personnel who's going to, you know, what's going to be tested, the decisions that are made on what, what items of evidence are going to be tested, what their probative value is, what the test results are, what the tests were, and the, uh, the ultimate results of those tests in their analysis within a crime lab, and what they mean to the case. Your firearms examiners, in this case, because there was a firearm used, what it all means. And then, then you get into your experts, your, whether you have psychiatrists or psychologists or MDs, doctors, uh, scientists speaking on the topics of things like DNA and, and other technical matters, shooting experts, re reconstruction experts, statement analysis people, things like that. They have to wade through all of this and then make a strategy to present it in a, uh, in a way that's understandable to the average layperson. <clears throat> your, your jurors can be made up of a cross-section. Well, not could be. They are. They're made up of a cross-section of society. You're going to get some very intelligent people on there. You're going to get some people who are very interested in what's going on. And you're going to get people that aren't interested at all in what's going on. And um, quite honestly, some of them may not be as educated or, or intelligent as others. And it's just the way it is. That's why it's very important to, to present it in a manner that is understandable to all of the jurors and the alternate jurors, not just the judge and everybody else. The jurors are the ones that are going to make the decision. So what we're going to do today is we are going to speak to some of the Commonwealth attorneys from the state of Kentucky, um, in Newport, Kentucky, where the case was tried. We're going to talk about the first trial. And as I alluded to earlier in, in earlier episodes, there was two trials of Shana Huber's. And we're going to talk about the first trial, how they prepped for it, how they planned for it. Commonwealth's attorney, Michelle Snodgrass, will join us, and we're going to discuss how they prepared for that. Uh, and then we're going to talk about why Shane Huber's got a second trial, why the first uh, verdict was was uh, thrown out, and she got a second chance at a, at defending herself in trial. And then we're going to talk to um, Kyle Burns, another Commonwealth attorney, assistant uh, Commonwealth attorney, who's going to talk about um, gearing up again and getting ready to push through and and try this again. It's a nightmare, I'm sure, for for prosecuting attorneys where, you know, you got to do this once and, and there's a lot of work to it and a lot of prep and they're sitting up late evenings and they're not home with their family and they're grinding away on figuring out how they're going to want to deliver this message to the court and to the jury in a lawful and legal manner. And then to have to do it all over again. And, and when you find out why it's, it's, uh, it's kind of a bizarre situation as to, as to why, but then to have to do it all over again. Yeah, and on the second time, there was a different set of defense attorneys. So they, they went at it with a different approach. So we're going to go into that, and I think you'll find it interesting. And we'll, we'll dive into some of the more colorful moments during the trial where 
where some of the witnesses spoke and, and we'll have, we'll have them tell you, um, what went on with that and, um, and how they think the juries reacted to certain witnesses and how it all went. So, um, I hope you enjoy this one and, uh, we're going to dive in here with, uh, the team of prosecuting attorneys from the Commonwealth of Kentucky here in a minute. So hang in there. Hey everyone, welcome back to Under the Yellow Tape. Today, we are going to get the opportunity to be joined by some folks from the Commonwealth Attorney's Office in Kentucky who tried the case of Shana Hubers and what we discussed in the last two episodes. And what we're going to do is try to lay out for you the role of the prosecutor and the difficulties and the challenges that they face in presenting one of these uh, complex cases to a jury. First, we're going to speak with Kyle Burns, an assistant Commonwealth attorney who was uh, a critical part of both the trials against Shana Hubers. And so he was there for the whole thing, the planning of everything and uh, the presentation to the court and the jury. Kyle, thanks for being with us. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, in, the, in the intro, what I try to do to, is explain the difficulties that you guys have and some of, the, some of the challenges in setting one of these cases up. Can you take us from the beginning of, I guess, right from how did you hear about the actual incident? Who notified you? And then what role did you take immediately following that? Sure. Um, well, I will go ahead and tell you that when, when this case happened, I had been employed with Michelle's office less than two weeks. So I was just at a brand new office trying to learn the ropes. Um, you know, every, every prosecutor's office, every county's different. Things are done a little bit differently. So I was still trying to get my feet under me when this murder happened on a Friday night in October. And I had heard about it over the weekend. I knew that the office had a murder. I was not heavily involved in those first couple days being so new. So I'll definitely defer to Michelle on that early 48, 72 hours. But that Monday, which I guess probably would have been the 15th of October, 2012, um, when I got to work, we had a little bit of the evidence back regarding this murder. And we'd gotten a little bit of information into Shani Huber's background. And it was immediately apparent that this was not our run-of-the-mill murder case in Campbell County and that Shana Hubers was not our run-of-the-mill run defendant. Yeah. I mean, when I, when I looked into her background, one, one of the things that struck me odd uh, as odd right away is, I mean, academically, she was a standout. She was pretty talented in, 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 in uh, you know, the art. She could sing. She could do all this other stuff there. And she, was, she seemed pretty squared away yeah, on paper. On, on paper, um, Shana would have been the All-American girl. I think she attended the University of Kentucky on a music scholarship. I believe she was on a full scholarship for music. She's a very talented vocalist. And uh, Shana's smart. She is a sharp girl. And she made good grades, and she had plans for herself. So on paper, she's the All-American girl. But I will tell you that um, Shana also <laughs> believes that she's very smart. And I think that a lot of the mistakes she made in those first few days were her believing in her ability to outsmart people. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So looking at the video of her in the, in the, in the holding area, that became very apparent. She, um, she kind of, uh, she just wouldn't stop. And, it, and I think it came back to bite her in the ass there in the end. What, There's um, no doubt. She, uh, she, she definitely couldn't stop. It's almost like she couldn't keep herself from talking. She was desperate to tell her story that night. I remember watching the police officers and thought, wow, this is brilliant. They're just sitting there. They're saying nothing. And she just, she, I think she couldn't sit across from them and without some conversation, without some dialogue. She seemed to be, it's like she struggled with the silence. And, and, and you know, Howie, to hear you say that is interesting because, you know, you've done 
hundreds of homicide cases, thousands of criminal investigations, who knows how many trials. I will tell you, it's unlike any police, and I'm putting, you can't see me, but I'm putting quotes around interrogation I've ever seen because it was not an interrogation. You're exactly right. If you watch Shana's statement that she gave to police on the night of the murder, she actually asked for an attorney relatively early. And as a result, that girl was never asked another question, not one. And she proceeded to talk for nearly three more hours, unprompted, unsolicited to anyone that they sent in there. In fact, if they, they had to cycle the officers in and out because people were getting tired. They were getting tired of listening to her talk and they needed a break. And you could tell sometimes if a different officer went in that wasn't nodding along with her, engaging with her, that she felt like wasn't listening to her, she would ask for the other one back. She wanted someone to listen to her story and she talked unprompted for three hours. And I can tell you in my decade of prosecuting, I've never seen anything like that. I've never seen that. I've never seen it to that extent. I watched that and I kind of shook my head saying, this is gold. But the other thing is, it ought to be a lesson to a lot of officers out there and detectives out there who do interviews and interrogations. Sometimes you just got to let people speak. If you create that environment, sometimes they'll go. Sometimes they won't. But she, she couldn't handle that silence. And that, that's a, almost a great case study for an interview class for, for newer law enforcement. Or actually, it doesn't matter how much time they have on. Just watch when you sit and stare at them how they'll, they'll generate the conversation for you. You you are exactly right. I cannot tell you the number of times that we've watched an actual interrogation where it's the police officer running the show, asking the questions and the defendant starts to say something and the officer cuts them off. We're like, no, no, I wanted to hear what they had to say, not what you were asking. And I can't tell you the number of times we've encountered that because she asked for an attorney. We had none of that with Shana. All we had from these police officers for three hours was nodding, grunting, affirmative words, not a single question asked. And it was, it was fascinating to watch. Yeah. That, 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 that hurt, that hurt her big time. She couldn't handle that. So, and you know, it wasn't just her words. If you remember what it was her behavior, <laughs> it was everything. And it, it, and it always also that one of the fascinating things about Shana, it wasn't just what she said to police when they were in the room, because right. there were times when there was no office, you know, they'd have to pull this officer out of there, tell him, write notes, write down what she said to you. And she was in that room alone. And it was in those moments when you saw her dance, sing, snap her fingers, bragging, I did it, I did it, I did it. And it was her behavior when she was alone and didn't think anybody was watching or didn't know that she was being recorded that you really got a glimpse into how Shanna felt about the fact that she had just brutally murdered Ryan. I think one of the things that struck me the most was the, when she started sobbing and then the officer walked out of the room it was like a light switch. She just turned it right off. You mean when she went from full on sobbing to as yeah. soon as the door shut, scraping at her fingernails? It was unbelievable. I mean, I remember sitting back in my chair going, whoa, holy cow. This mm-hmm. is something out of a made for HBO movie. I mean, she's, she just shut it off. And you know, it's funny, a hardened criminal, one of the first things they do, somebody who's a, you know, a repeat offender, been through the systems, been in those rooms before. You always watch. One of the first things they do is they look around the room. They know there's a camera. They want to see where it is. They're looking for the angles. She, I don't know that she ever did. I there was, one, there was one moment very late, and I'll tell you, it came it, very ironic when it came in the video. There was some po- moment where she was alone, and she giggled to herself, and she said, I'm so good at acting. <laughs> I'm so good at acting. 
is what she she thought she was running this show. She thought she was telling them everything they wanted to hear. She thought she was saying everything necessary to get waltzed out of there in a blanket like some kind of victim. And yeah. she giggled to herself and said, I'm so good at acting. And it wasn't long after that, maybe another minute and a half, she's alone in the room and she was walking around and she spotted the microphone on the table and she walked up and started tapping it um, almost like she hadn't noticed it before. And she was wondering if it was on. Wow. Yeah. That's, 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 that's your come to Jesus moment right there where you just say to yourself, Oh my God, what have I done? But I don't what have I she, done? <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't know if she got it. Mm. So talk a little bit about, uh, our, our, our victim, Ryan Poston and his background. Um, Ryan was a Northern Kentucky native, grew up here in Northern Kentucky. He uh, actually had traveled a lot in his life. His stepfather, Peter, who played a huge part in raising him, um, worked for Procter & Gamble and kind of moved them all around the world. Ryan went to school in Switzerland and the Philippines and things like that, moving around for Peter's job. And he came back to America to finish high school and went to college at Indiana, got a couple different degrees. Um, Ryan was way more of a scholar <laughs> than I'll ever be. Really just one of those people that kind of loved learning, loved history, loved information, the kind of things that would, you know, make some of us make our eyes gloss over at the talk of it. He just loved that kind of information and that kind of knowledge. So he got some kind of double major, I believe it was history and political science. And then he ultimately ended up going to law school here in Northern Kentucky at Chase College of Law. And out of law school, he uh, worked with a couple different firms around the area and not terribly long before he was killed, maybe a year or so, he had started his own practice and his own law office. And that's what he was in the process professionally of doing at the time he was murdered. He um, had a young practice and some colleagues we've spoken to will tell you that professionally things were going well for Ryan. You know, it's hard, yeah. especially coming out of a 2008 recession to really start your own law practice and start from scratch. And they'll tell you that he had clients and Business was going good and things were kind of turning a corner for him professionally. As far as Ryan's personal life, um, he has a very, very strong family unit on all sides. You know, he has um, two dads, one biological, one step parent that love him very much. His mother, he's got three sisters, um, large, large extended family, many, many aunts, uncles and cousins on both his mom and his dad's side. Very, very close families. Um, you know, I, I make a joke in this area. Northern Kentucky, Cincinnati are heavily Catholic. Two big Catholic families is what Ryan had. A lot of siblings, a lot of cousins, a lot of aunts and uncles all always around. And this definitely, you know, what, what Shana did wasn't just something she did to Ryan. It was something she did to many, many, many people because his absence just ripped a hole in these families. I did see that when I was out there. I, I, I remember seeing his family and I thought, my God, this is like, these people are like the poster family for all American family. And, uh, you know, they're all sweet people to talk to. I had a, a, the opportunity to have a, an extended conversation with his biological dad. And he, um, he was very passionate about what was going on there. He, he, was, he wanted to be there through the whole thing and make sure, you know, he was, he was part of it. And I, I was impressed by his family. I was genuinely impressed. And I'll tell you one thing that's interesting about Ryan's family is um, every single one of them that I met over the course of these 10 years of proceedings aunts, uncles, cousins, parents, siblings, every single one of them had a story about Ryan that was their favorite story of something he did for them. Hmm. Of a time when they were having a hard time in their life and he would drive them to doctor's appointments 
or when something happened when one of his sisters was at school and he was helping her, guiding her through it over the phone, something when a gift he got for one of his parents at Christmas. Every single person in his family has a story that they feel like encapsulates Ryan. And there's no doubt his family was a huge part of his life. Yeah. Yeah. It was a shame. I, I get, you could see the pain in their eyes as this thing had just unfolded and uh, we'll get into, you know, the reconstruction part of it in a little bit. And, and, and from my perspective, looking out seeing their family, as I would, you know, you would question me and I would answer some of this. Uh, you could almost see the, it, it was even more painful for them to watch, but you it, it definitely hearing, hearing the reconstruction and your articulate telling of it, it, it brought their nightmare to life. They, yeah. they came to understand just how brutal his death was. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was, it, and it was, and we'll, we'll definitely get into that too. And I talked about the, a lot of that in the first two episodes, the, the background of that. Um, now tell me about how did these two get together? I mean, you know, this kid's all American and she's, she's a certainly, uh, listen, I, I want to preface it by saying too, look, she's a, she was a very pretty young girl, very smart. And like we said on paper, so I can see the attraction, but from that point on, it seemed like it just was a bit of a dumpster oh, it, fire. At first, first glance, Shana checks a lot of boxes. Like you said, yeah. she's attractive. She kind of had her act together. She had aspirations. She was ambitious. Um, you know, they got together the way a lot of people get together these days. It kind of started with the internet. They had mutual friends. Um, Ryan's cousin went to college with Shana, they, and they knew each other and a couple other connections in common. So on Facebook and other things like that, he would see Shana's pictures pop up. And I think at some point he asked his cousin about her, you know, what's her story? She's, she's pretty, which, which, what's her deal? Yeah. Got some background on her. And ultimately I think he friend requested her and just struck up, you know, kind of a dialogue between them messaging back and forth, told her who he was. He was her cousin and he'd noticed her and they just kind of started messaging and getting to know each other. Like a lot of people do these days. And he could never have known the decision that he had made when he sent, sent that message. No, no. That's for sure. How long did they date before this? Do you have any? Do you, do you recall how yeah, long they were together? Yeah, uh, no. <laughs> I know you're going to ask me specific dates and stuff. You got to remember, nah, I'm a little rusty now. If yeah. I had to go off the top of my head, I would say that they started dating late spring of 2011. Mm -hmm. um, you know, April, May 2011. Really kind of picked up that summer. And also, the other thing I'll clarify and put an asterisk on is when I tell you how long they dated. There was breakup after breakup after breakup after breakup. So I don't want to imply that this was a continuous yeah. time frame. And then obviously they were together to some extent up until the murder on October 12th, 2012. So right. you're looking at a little shy of an 18 month window. But like I said, there would be periods in there off and on where they would be broken up for weeks or sometimes months at a time. And during the course of getting ready, um, for the trial, you know, the conclusion of the investigation portion and you guys preparing for trial, you got a chance to speak to some of his friends. Is that true? We did. We spoke to a number of Ryan's friends about his, about his background, about this relationship and about what they knew to go on during that period of time. And they pretty much were all, it was pretty tumultuous. I mean, they, they gave all of his friends and obviously, you know, let's be objective here. All of his friends most of what they knew was self-report from Ryan. Um, some of it was personal observation. You know, there were some people that went on devil dates with them that happened to be at the apartment when she was there, things like that, that got to witness it firsthand. But most of what they knew was from Ryan himself. And yeah. 
he had confided in many, many people about the issues in this relationship and about the many issues that Shana as a person has. Right. Yeah. I, I remember reading a bunch of that and everybody said the same thing. And there was a, there was a friend, I don't recall her name, but she gave a lot of background. She's a female uh, friend of his, blonde hair. I remember seeing her picture in the, in uh, one of the um, reports where I guess she grew up with him or she, she was a childhood friend or I don't know whether they had a relationship or not. She gave quite a bit of background. Okay. So the person you're probably thinking of, I'm thinking it's a girl named Allie and she was kind of a professional contact. They had known each other for a number of years, you know, just both working downtown Cincinnati, stuff like that. And she actually in the days leading up to this murder was kind of caught between the middle of these two. And I can get into that if you want, or we can hold that for later. But um, her information was very relevant from a timeline perspective. Okay. She, yeah, she was witnessing this kind of well, it's, falling you apart. Know, this, the weekend that he was killed that Friday night, Ryan had been doing his best to tell Shana he needed space, to tell her he needed time. She probably shouldn't be here that weekend. He was really doing his best to put up some walls and some boundaries to help him end this relationship. While trying to be a gentleman. While while trying to be civil, while trying to avoid some dramatic confrontation, um, while trying to some extent, you know, let her down easy, maybe phase her out as opposed to some dramatic confrontation, like I said. And so one of the issues was he had told her that he was attending this fashion show downtown. And as a result, Shayna was demanding to go. And he had told her there were no tickets. She could not go. He was going with people who were putting on this event and that it just wasn't an option for her to go. Allie Wagner was running that modeling agency and she took the call from Shayna, verified by call logs, that Shayna called and was trying to get tickets, represented herself as Ryan Poston's girlfriend, and was trying to get tickets to this oh. show after Ryan had told her there are none. And I believe she reached out to Ryan and told him, I just got the strangest phone call, and he knew immediately and just said, oh, my God, she, I'm so sorry. Like, I told her she can't. I told her she can't come. And so that girl that you're referencing that told us a lot about, you know, what Ryan was like to deal with, she in the 24, 48 hours leading up to his murder was kind of caught in the middle of him trying to put the space between them and, and her refusing to let him put that space there. I gotcha. Okay. Um, as you guys moved forward and, you know, you were getting prepared, what were, you know, kind of a, a synopsis, what were the things as a prosecutor you look and say, in, in this particular case, because I understand they're all different. In this particular case, you said, all right, we got to drive certain points home here to a jury. We got to make sure that certain things we get across. What were some of the real kind of, you know, nitty gritty things that you said, we, we must get this point over to the well, jury? Well, I'll tell you what the overall mission in this case is. And then that kind of boils down to how we went about it. This is a girl who savagely murdered an innocent man mm-hmm. and paraded herself out of there as the victim. There are women all across this country in physical, physically violent relationships. Shana Hubers was not one of them. There are people all across this country being abused who have to take the means to protect themselves, which is why we have self-protection laws. Shana Hubers is not one of them. So the important thing for us from day one was to make it very clear that the only victim in this case was Ryan Poston and not Shana Hubers. And that is exactly what we had to demonstrate to a jury unequivocally 
was that Shayna was the aggressor and Ryan was the victim, despite how many times she would want to paint herself as the victim. So that was the overall goal in this case. And there were a variety of ways we went about that. The two, three things I would probably attribute that to the most. Number one, the physical evidence, which is where we found a very good crime scene reconstructionist, which would be you. (laughs) And secondly, um, her video statement that she gave to police and just all the inconsistencies in her story. This account she gave of this violent struggle that led to Ryan's murder that did not match the physical evidence, that did not match the crime scene, that did not match the other information in the case. And finally, the history of this relationship. If people thought Shana talked a lot to police when she did that three-hour statement, imagine how much that girl did with a cell phone in her hand over the course of 18 months. Shana Huber sent hundreds upon hundreds of texts a day. Not a month, not a week, a day. We had her phone, and when we downloaded it, there were something like 55,000 text messages over the course of this relationship for us to go through. That was awful (laughs) to an extent of having to go through it, having to organize it, having to figure out a way to present it. But at the same time, these are two people that we did not know. This was a relationship that we were not there to witness. Her phone was like a time capsule. Yeah, We were able to actually watch this relationship from its inception unfold all the way until the day of the murder. And so that, as we are approaching this case, as I mentioned, it was about showing who the victim truly was. And her phone absolutely revealed the extent to which Ryan tried to get out of this relationship, the extent to which he was emotionally abused, the extent to which he was stalked, the extent to which Shana was relentless, relentless in her pursuit of refusing to allow him to distance himself from her. So when you ask how we approach the case, like I said, it was really three things for us. The crime scene and the physical evidence, the way that her story absolutely was physically impossible, and finally, the history of the relationship made it apparent that Shana was not a victim. She was a murderer. And and I think a good point to bring up, as you said that, you said the three things, and to some people listening, they may be like, okay, well, those three things. Those are three pretty complex things. Mm-hmm. Especially when you said 55,000 <laughs> 55, text messages. That's just between them, I assume, is what you're saying. Oh, yes. That's just, I mean, that, yeah. there are so many texts on that phone. That doesn't include her face. We went through her Facebook. We went through her text. We went through all of it. I mean, it was an absolutely massive undertaking. In fact, that's how I really got involved in this case. That alone, like I said, I was a young prosecutor. I was new to the office when this crime first happened. And really processing, organizing, and digesting all of the social media is how I got involved in the case in the first hand because Michelle had bigger things to deal with. You know, she was dealing with the litigation aspect of it. She was putting together a murder case. She did not have the time to delve deep into that world inside that phone. And that became my job. And that was how I got so involved in the case in the beginning and was involved in the first trial. And then when the second trial rolled around, which I'm sure we'll talk about, at that point, because of having gone through all those messages, 55,000 of them, no one else in the office besides Michelle knew the case as well as me, and I was up to bat. Yeah. And, I, you know, we, we talk a lot of times to uh, groups, school groups, younger people. We try to tell them all the time. And, you, and this is, you know, when you say this to the younger people, it's kind of like your dad saying, oh, that music, turn that music off. You know, it's like you feel like that crotchety old guy, but you, you kind of want to say to them, look, I know you've been born into and you're raised in an electronic device world and social media is a massive part of your existence. And you try to tell them, 
it's an electronic trail of everything, of everything. Every. And people, and I'm not talking about, you know, police or the prosecutors, there's predators out there that, that, that track you on this and, and you have to understand what it does. And some of them will look at you like a deer in the headlight and just, it doesn't matter. You know, I'm good. I don't do anything bad. You know, they think it's okay. Until like, until you see something like what you're just talking about and the depth that you can look into somebody's behavioral patterns, patterns of life, we call it. Um, it's, it's, it, there's geolocating. There's, there's everything. That thing is an open book to somebody's life because they can't help it. They're, they're dying for that dopamine hit for how many likes did I get on a post or this or that. And you scratch your head and you say, you know, you got to learn to put it down once in a while. And she's a perfect example. She is. And the extent that her phone revealed her to be a liar, not just to Ryan, to her parents, to her friends, to her teachers, to everyone, the extent to her that her phone betrayed her as to what a liar she is was astounding because you would have her one minute telling somebody her grandma died and she couldn't come to class and one minute telling somebody she was hungover in bed. And that stuff happens. People do that stuff. But Mm -hmm. she flew to Hawaii without her parents knowing and was in Hawaii for 10 days. And the extent to which she would tell somebody, I think Ryan's cheating on me. I'm going to drive up there from 85 miles away. And then she's texting Ryan, Hey, I'm just, just in the neighborhood. Do you care if I swing by her phone? (laughs) Absolutely betrayed her to that extent because our ability to compare what she told everyone within minutes of each other, it was never consistent. Yeah. To be able to look at a jury and say, she lied to everybody in her life. She's going to lie to you. Mm -hmm. When you said, um, you know, it showed what it did, you know, to her parents. I, I, I specifically remember her mom in the courtroom and I know her mom, look, it's her daughter. I get it. You know, she's going to try to stick by her thick and thin, but I got to be honest, man. I saw the pain in that woman's face. She was, she was a little different, but she also, and there was pain. She's, I think she had seen it all unfold and she just was, Oh my God, she wasn't going to give her up, but it, it was different. No parent, no parent ever wants to be in the shoes that Shana's no. parents are in. Um, it, it's not a pleasant experience. It's no one ever wants to see their child tried and have people have their child called a murderer. And she's their only child. Yeah, she was their absolute focus. But I can't help but wonder, believe, and maybe hope that some of that pain we see in her face is regret. That she knows that this behavior that has become so ingrained in Shayna that she cultured, enabled, allowed, and that maybe if she had gotten it under control many years ago, we wouldn't be here. Yeah. So maybe I'm giving her too much of the benefit of the doubt, but I can only hope that some of that pain is regret that she could have put a stop to some of this many years ago that wouldn't have sent us on this fatal crash course. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I, there was a lot in her, her, in her facial expressions and you know, part of me sat there and looking at her saying, all right, I kind of respect the fact that it's your kid. You're not, you're going to, you know, you're going to try to get her back. But she, I think she knew that ship was going down and she watched the whole thing happen right in front of her face in that courtroom. And I guarantee, yeah, there's some regret there saying, what the hell have I done? Where did I go wrong? How did we get here? And that's, uh, well, that's and also when the, when the evidence against your child is just so damning. Yeah. I think it takes away that place as a parent we would want to go to that safe place in our mind where we would want to convince ourselves that maybe it's not true. Maybe it wasn't that bad. Maybe they didn't do that. But when the evidence against your child is just so damning, it leaves you no place to hide. Yeah. And it's not like a neighborhood thing where where you're accusing a child of something and the parents is not my little Johnny or not my little Mary. This is like 
the, the smorgasbord is out on the table. Here, we're going to show you the entire menu here of your daughter's life and how screwed up it is. Take a look at this and, and, and chew on this for a while. It's, it's pretty amazing. When you um, explain the process to people from the defense side too and how you have to go back and forth in your pretrial motions and, and hearings, what do they have to give the court before the trial actually kicks off? as far as a defense, a line of defense, what they're going to do, a strategy, anything like that? Well, that depends. And I, I can only speak to the state of Kentucky. I've only practiced here. So what it really depends on is what type of defense you're pursuing. You know, if you're going for a pure self-defense, meaning I was entitled to commit this murder because I needed to prevent myself from death or serious physical injury, then you can file in the state of Kentucky for immunity. Basically mm -hmm. ask the judge to dismiss your case. And the judge has to find that there was probable cause for the police to believe that you did not act in self-defense in order for the case to go forward. And that happened in this case. She did mm -hmm. file for pretrial immunity and essentially asked the judge to rule that she was privileged to ask in self act in self-protection and that there was not probable cause to believe she didn't and that she should never have been arrested. The judge quickly denied that. Um, mm -hmm. So that's one aspect of it. The other one is if in the state of Kentucky, if you're going to provide a mental health defense. If you're going to essentially claim that your crime was carried out as a result of some sort of mental disease or defect, you know, what we often hear of as an insanity defense, you mm -hmm. do have to provide notice of that to the prosecution. And that is essentially what she did in her second case. Other than that, the defendant has no obligation really to disclose their defense. Right. They must put you on notice of any expert witnesses they are planning to call. They must provide you with that expert's opinions, their reports, whatever they've generated. But they could go into trial blind. They have no obligation to tell us what defense they're pursuing, what evidence they're going to use, how they're going to support it. And that is a large part of prosecuting, is anticipating what their defense will be and preparing for it, or anticipating what all their alternative defenses could be and preparing for it. Preparing for all possible scenarios is a lot of what prosecution is. And, and that's one of the things I, uh, I really wanted to drive home in, in this particular episode is how difficult it is for you, because you have to lay everything on the table in advance, don't you? Yes, we have to provide everything. Um, everything has to be provided. We're not allowed to hide the ball, so to speak. And that's because the burden in the criminal justice system is on the government. We mm -hmm. must prove our case beyond a reasonable doubt. They don't have to prove anything. A defense can call no witnesses. They can put on no proof. And if the jury believes that we have not proven our case beyond a reasonable doubt, that person should be found not guilty. Right. Yeah. So her defense in the first one, when they finally did go to trial, I mean, he kind of went for the defense, self-defense. Her defense in the first trial was a, what we call a pure self-defense case. She alleged that this physical encounter on the night of the murder took place between she and Ryan and that she had to kill Ryan in order to protect herself right. from serious physical injury or death. Gotcha. And in, a, in one of the earlier episodes we talked about in the reconstruction and looking just at the crime scene, um, I would like, you know what, let me ask you this, because I, I, I think it's very important that, that people, that the general public, that, uh, you know, people in law enforcement that are listening to this, hear this from a district attorney, hear this from a Commonwealth attorney. The absolute importance of securing the scene uh, in, the, in, the, in the way it w is when you arrive, they, uh, they call it in situ, it's, it's, but it's, it's, Nothing moved, what it means, the relevance of that. And in this particular case, how relevant was the dining room table? So the integrity of the crime scene is the integrity of the evidence, is the integrity of the case. You know, this murder happened October 12, 2012. 
We didn't go to trial the first time until April of 2015, nearly three years after the fact. We didn't go to trial the second time until August of 2018, nearly six years after the fact, only because our crime scene investigators in this particular case did such a good job controlling the scene, managing ingress and egress, documenting the scene, keeping a record of who went in and who went out. Only because they did such a good job controlling this crime scene were we able to look at a jury six years after the fact and tell them with 100% certainty that it was as it happened, that that was laying where Shana left it, that Ryan was laying as he fell, that nothing had been disturbed. So the steps that investigators take early on to control the scene, obviously step one is deal with the emergency, tend to the victim, see if there's anything that could be done, eliminate the threat, get the shooter out of there, those type of things. We understand, I sit here behind a desk. I can't tell these people how to respond to these hectic scenes, potentially dangerous scenes, but after they eliminate the threat, after they render the aid, that's when they've got to get out and get the scene under control. Absolutely yeah. manages who goes in and who goes out and take every detail to document the scene as it is, because that's your only chance. You can't go back and document it again. You can't go back and preserve evidence again. You've got to get it right the first time. And in this particular case, we are so lucky. That is exactly what the Highland Heights Police Department and the Campbell County Crime Scene Unit did. Yeah, they did. And uh, I remember when we first looked at it, I said, wow, everything is, I got to be honest, it's, it's unfortunately, sometimes it's rare that you get everything in that good a shape. But this, this case, they were, it was, everything was right there, right where it was, right where it needed to be to do an analysis after the fact and look at, look at a sequence of events. Well, um, one thing I'll tell you about this case compared to others yeah. I've done, um, it allowed us to do our job and ultimately allowed you to do your job. This yeah. was one of the best, most well-photographed scenes I've ever had. Um, yeah. One of our local officers, I believe it was Nick Love, did the photographs. In fact, I think he's attended some of your courses. He has. Officer Love did the photography at this scene, and it was the most thorough, logical processing of a crime scene from a photography aspect that I've had. And that was so beneficial to us. And as a result, with us being able to turn the case file over to you and you being able to do what you do with the blood stains, with the runoff, with the spatter and everything, it was just so helpful years after the fact, the good job that he had did on the front end with the photography. He did. And I, you know, a shameless plug for UT. He is a graduate of the National Forensic Academy at the University of Tennessee. <laughs> I'll just throw that in there because he did attend. And did a great job. And he well, did. You I'm, I'm glad you got to him before this crime happened then. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was, it was, it was really good. But talk to me about um, when you're in front of a jury, how important is this and how difficult is it sometimes to, deter to determine the sequence of events within a violent crime? Well, difficulty, as you probably cover on your podcast all the time, I think it varies case to case, but it's never easy because no one was yeah. there. Unless you have a, in this case, Ryan didn't walk out of there alive. This wasn't an assault. This was a murder. So we didn't have him there to tell us what happened. And obviously we couldn't go off Shana's word because that's shown us what it's worth. So it really was about reconstructing what happened from the physical evidence. And that is not easy. And that's where your line of work becomes so vital to what we do. Juries want to understand. They, at the end of the day, they don't want to have a ton of questions. They want to try to feel like they had a grasp on what occurred in that condo. And in this particular case, fortunately, based on all, in my opinion, and you please jump in and correct me if I'm wrong because you're the expert here, I think the blood, I think the blood was everything in this case. 
that allowed us to give them a sequence of events and a narrative to this crime? What, what would you say was the biggest factor? Oh, the blood. There's two things. The wound tracks. First of all, location Big. on the body. I forgot about the wound tracks. That's true. Yeah, the location on the body where it's impacted, and then the wound tracks in and through the body. Then the, the then the blood. The blood is the is the the trail of breadcrumbs. Of the movement the of the blood pools from the table to mm-hmm. the chair to the ground. And and you know one thing, and maybe you've talked about it on your podcast, maybe you haven't. But for your listeners, Howard taught me what a void was, mm-hmm. and that sometimes where you don't find blood is more important than where you do. Remember teaching me that when I was a young oh, yeah. prosecutor? It's and true. the voids really in this case, how huge they were. I felt like you were able to, for the jury, place Ryan at that table, seated when he was shot. And the fact that your, quote, aggressor, as she called him, the person that she felt like she needed to defend herself against, was sitting when the first shot to his head was delivered is fatal to her case. And from there, he falls to the table and he's shot again. And from there, he falls to the floor and he's shot again and again and again. And I felt like the way you were able to use the blood evidence and the voids to sequence that for them just absolutely decimated her story. Yeah. The other thing that was big with her, and I mentioned it earlier, was the gunshot residue and, and showing, showing her movement. When you, can, when you can explain to it, well, let me double back first. I, 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 we talk about this in some of the classes and I say, you know, your job, meaning the investigators, is twofold. One, you're a professional investigator. You have to get the information. You have to get the data. You have to find the truth. The other thing is you got to be a professional witness. So you have to make sure this jury understands what you already know, what you've already discovered. And if you, um, if you don't, you're, you know, that's a big loss at, at the time of a trial. If you just get up there and you kind of stammer, yeah, yes, no, yes, no, you got to kind of, you got to talk them through it a little bit. And that professional witness thing is, is important because that's where you're going to get the chance to explain that movement. And when you, a lot of people focus on the victims as we should, but they lose some focus of the movement of the shooter and the shooter's movement tells us a lot about their intent absolutely what they're doing and that and that was a critical thing with her and i I remember you pointing out that the fact that there was no was it stippling on ryan is that how Mm -hmm. there was no stippling with the first headshots that occurred at the table but then Mm -hmm. the later shots that you say happened when he was laying helpless on the ground had stippling and you said she advanced on him she closed the gap and she advanced on him you know if you're a victim of domestic violence if you're forced to shoot somebody to protect yourself, you're doing what you have to do when you're getting out that door. Absolutely. That's not what she did. Nope. She kept moving closer each time she fired on him until she was, I think you ultimately determined she was somewhere between six and 24 inches from yeah. him. Yeah. That she is not right far. Down. No. That is not 24 inches. Two feet may sound like a lot until you actually hold out a ruler and imagine a gun being held 24 inches mm-hmm. from you. That is not far. And the fact that she closed that gap and advanced on him, no doubt tells us this was an execution. That's, oh, that, and that's exactly what I said at the end of the last episode. I said, that last shot was she executed him. And then why don't you tell us a little about, about some of what she said with regards to that? You know, I, I didn't want to watch sure. that. Sure. She said some very, very surprising things about that. Um, she said she delivered the first shot and that he let out some kind of noise like an animal. And it scared her. So she shot him again. And then at some point she said that she knew she had shot him in the face and that he was a vain person and he would not want to have a disfigured face. So she decided to put him out of his misery. Yeah. 
because he would not want to live with facial deformities. After that, she talked about how he was lying on the ground, twitching. And this is the kind of horrible stuff that his family had to listen to, that he was lying on the ground, twitching and gurgling. And so she decided to, quote, finish him off because it was too hard for her to watch. So it was too hard for her Mm -hmm. to watch him suffer like that. So she continued shooting him until he stopped. And I even think she said, so I shot him where I knew it would kill him. I mean, that's at close range. (laughs) And let's let's call it what it is. It's almost like when you injure an animal. Yeah, you're putting him down. When you accidentally hit a dog and Uh it's suffering or you a deer is suffering. It's exactly what she did. She put him down like an animal. Yep. Talk about the nose or comment about the nose. So she had made a uh, when she talked about, you know, his facial deformities, she laughed. And she told the police officer who was sitting across from her, she said, you know, he told me once that he wanted a nose job. Well, I shot him right here. And she gestured to her face and said, I guess I gave him his nose job he wanted and laughed. I just, when I saw that, uh, there's a point where you watch some of her, her video and you think, okay, they want me to look at this. Am I being punked? This is like, I've never write, seen write, your, write yourself a note. When Michelle hops on here, you've got to ask her about that. Cause she's got a story about that. She listened to it live. I will. I, I just, man, I, I, there were so many things, you know, and the, there's like that legal term, the excited utterance. This wasn't that this was, she was just given a, she was given a dissertation up there. And you know, this was, this was pride. Um, yeah. if you recall that part where she was alone in the interrogation room and she was mm-hmm. snapping her fingers and saying, I did it. I yeah. did it. Like <laughs> she was proud of herself for what she had done to that man. Which is, you know, brings me to another point. I remember going there. And then when I first got up on the witness stand, I looked out and I, you know, when you sit down on the witness stand and I don't care what anybody thinks when you're a witness, I don't care how many times you've testified, you, you have nerves, you have butterflies in your stomach. Look, you're going up, you're being put on the stage here. And it's not like a a stage that you necessarily want to be on. And you have to answer some, you know, you know, the, the people that are going first, meaning you are going to ask me questions that. I'm fine with, I know what's coming. It's when the other side gets their shot and you kind of have to kind of wiggle yourself into the seat and say, right, here we go. So, you know, the first thing you do is you look around. I want to see the jury. I want to look at the jury. I want to look at you. I want to look at the defense. And then I looked at her and I can tell you the look on her face to me was, there was, there was a, there was a, almost like an evil stare, like a little, like an angry look. I don't know whether like he said, all right, th- this guy's going to do some damage to you or I don't know. But she had this look like, man, you could see evil. I saw an evil before. And like we've, we've arrested murderers, drug dealers, rapists, this and that. Thing. I remember after 9-11 executing a search warrant on a place. And this guy was involved. And we found money. We found a bunch of other things. Anyways, when it was time to put the handcuffs on him, I watched the facial expression change to an evil that you don't often see. And Shana Huber's had that evil look when she wanted it. I don't know what kind of demons were running around in her head, but man, she, when she, she could turn on the smile, the charm, the whole thing. But all of a sudden, it just turned into this kind of visceral evil stare. And I do remember that very first time sitting down, looking over and, and seeing that and being like, wow. She's oh, it's, it's, it's a stare I'm familiar with. I've, <laughs> I've been getting it shot in my direction for eight years. <laughs> I bet, yeah, over and over. Every time you... Every time you probably locked eyes, she had it. Uh-huh. Um, so her defense attorney, the first the first time, he came up with um, 
He wanted self-defense. Let's talk about um, what well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to comment on that real quick. Yes. Her, her defense attorney presented the self-defense case. Mm-hmm. You will never convince me that was her attorney's decision. Right. Shana wanted self-defense. She wanted to be told that she was justified. Mm-hmm. She wanted to be told that she deserved to do what she did to Ryan. I will yeah. always believe that it was her decision to pursue a self-defense defense instead of something different, no matter what legal advice she got. Well, yeah, it makes sense because she probably at that point, in the first go around, she wouldn't have been able to handle any any other kind of anybody looking at her with some sort of deficiency or something wrong with her. I, I think she thought she was going to get what she wanted, like she'd gotten her whole life. I think she thought that the jury was going to believe her, that she was mm-hmm. so compelling, that she they would find her pretty and smart. I think she thought that once again, she was going to charm her way into what she wanted. Yeah. Wow. Um, what we'll do now, if, if it's okay with you, because um, Michelle is here with us, correct? Mm-hmm. Why don't we switch over to Michelle? Real okay. quick, and um, I'm gonna ask. I'm gonna run her through this the rest of that first trial, and then I'm gonna double back with you if I can. Sure. For the second go around. All right. All right. And now we're gonna we're gonna talk with Michelle Snodgrass. She is the Commonwealth Attorney for the Seventeenth Judicial Circuit in Northern Kentucky. Michelle, thanks for being with us. Hi, Howard. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. So we were chatting with Kyle about um, you know his 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 uh, memory of everything and his role and how it all went. What I want to kind of hit with you is, you know, you're the Commonwealth attorney, you're the elected official there. These, these types of cases, the responsibility of prosecuting these cases falls squarely on your shoulders. It's, and it's a pretty heavy responsibility. Um, In this particular case or in any murder case, really, how do you gear up as the Commonwealth attorney? Do you, I mean, you have a staff, you have to sign people. How do you, how do you, kind of charge your head from when you first get that phone call? Well, you know, it's interesting that you talk about the responsibility that comes with it because prosecuting the case does fall um, on me as the elected official, as the head of the office. But the one thing beyond just prosecuting the case that falls on uh, prosecutors all across the country that isn't talked about that much is the enormous responsibility to get that family justice. Um, and, and I think that's something that complicates it more and puts even more pressure on you. So not only do you want to do the right thing by the victim, but you have the victim's family that is there that is, you know, relying on you for everything to make sure everything goes right. So sure. from the very beginning, we do this. We, we start thinking about the victim. We think about the victim's family. And uh, I get everybody in my office on board. You know, we, we are in Northern Kentucky, right across from Cincinnati, but we're not a huge office. So you cannot handle a case like this without the help of everyone. Right. And uh, I think it was very obvious to us from the very beginning that this case was going to be way more than just a simple homicide. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you, you had a chance to be out there at, at that scene. You, saw, you, you got a firsthand look at that scene? Yeah. So I get called out anytime that there is a homicide. You know, I think um, for me, I'm a visual learner. I have to see it, smell it, experience it, you know, anything that that goes into um, my mind that I can pull on later when I'm actually in trial. So the investigators are there processing the scene. I go there thinking immediately about what am I going to need a trial. So they're different perspectives. And I found over my um, over 20 years of prosecuting that that's really kind of the best way. If I'm not there, I can't do my job as well 
as I need to. You can't see things the same way in a photograph as you can if you are actually walking around. So I showed up with the chief, um, Chief Birkenhauer, um, on that day back in 2012 and immediately walked into the room and said, things do not seem right. Yeah. And at that point, they had already um, they had already taken her back. Let me ask you this about um, one thing about her. She initially called her mother. Is that true? Yes. Yeah, the Before first call that she made after she sat and watched Ryan die, I think her testimony was I sat there for like 10 to 15 minutes. Um, and within that period of time, she called her mom. Yeah. Which I thought was extremely odd. Um, and to this day, I just want to know what that conversation was. What happened? What did she say? What did her mom advise her to do? And then why did it take 10 to 15 minutes before she decided to call the authorities and call 911? And that's a damaging, that's a dam- damaging piece of information against her in front of a jury, isn't it? Oh, the jury hated that about her. Uh, there were many things, and, and we've talked to the jurors. There were many things that they did not like. But that particularly, that and the fact that she watched him, and as he laid on the floor twitching, she decided to shoot him four more times to put him out of his misery. You know, when, when a jury hears that, I don't know how they get beyond that fact. That, you know, I mean, isn't, isn't that what you do to, like, roadkill or animals when they get hurt? That is what Shana Hubers did. She treated Ryan Poston as nothing more than roadkill. Yeah, I mean, just, you know, having done these types of investigations in almost my whole adult life, and you've been doing it for over 20 years, it's, you when you hear that somebody sat and watched somebody die and didn't call for help, even after all these years and as hardened as we get, uh, you kind of just sit back and say, what, what, what's going through your mind? And, and what's going through her mind is evil. Well, sure. And, and evil. one of the better pieces of evidence that we had was the dispatch operator, the 911 individual who, um, when she was talking to Shana Hubers on the phone, she said, um, you saw him twitching, so you shot him four more times instead of calling the police? almost like a cross-examination well it really was and and i think that even for her because we have to remember our dispatchers they are humans as well sure it was shocking for her to hear that but yes that is what that is what went through her mind and we always talk about her um having a a borderline personality disorder and um you know when she said in her interview to the police how it was so hard for her to watch him twitching you know, it's all about her. It's yeah. all about Shana. That was just too hard for her. So yeah. she just decided to shoot him a couple more times. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the really interesting things in statement analysis. When you start breaking down, not, you know, the, the, the comments of people, not just answers to questions, but sometimes they're just statements on their own and what they say. And that jumps right out at you. I had a hard time watching this. Yes. I mean, you're, you're just like, you know, what about him? Is he having a hard time right now? You, you want right. to ask her kind of sarcastically? Um, what, how, when you, when you started to prepare for trial, how significant was some of the video for you, um, and, and your strategy and when to present it to a jury of her in that interview room? Well, I can remember watching the video in its entirety the first time, because I was at the police station 
Mm-hmm. Um, and we were working on some search warrants, but I was also walking into the room where I could see some of it. So mm-hmm. I saw some of it that initial night. Um, I saw her talk about, you know, the nose job. And, and, and I remember standing there watching on the screen and turning to the chief and saying, did that really just happen? Did, yeah. did she really just say that? Um, and it was probably about a week or two after when I watched the the recording in its entirety. And I can remember calling probably five or six people into my office and having them all listen into headphones when she made the comments, when the police officers left the room where she said, I'm so good at lying. Mm-hmm. And then she said, I did it. Yep. I did it. Yeah. It, it, those were the things that to me were the most damning. And I knew right then that we opened up the trial with that video. Yeah. That's see, that's the, that's the point I want to get. That was interesting. Like, well, let's open it right there with this. Let's just, let's get right after it. I mean, that's, you don't see that often. I haven't seen well, that often. There is Not nothing that. that I could say to a jury, nothing that I could say to a jury that would be more effective than what she did, how she acted and what she said. So, you know, so many people think that, that, you know, lawyers try to make it all about themselves. But, but for me, I had to completely step back and say, this is all her. She's doing the work, not me. Yeah. And the jury needed to see that from the very first moment. Yeah. That's, that's one of those, those things that you're kind of, you were as a, as a, as the prosecuting attorney, you had to be chomping at the bit to get in there after this. Cause that, that is, that was gold. When I saw it the first time, I went, you gotta be kidding me. I've never seen it, anything like this. It was. And we couldn't wait to show everybody, you know, we couldn't wait for the community and um, you know, the jurors especially to see that. Yeah. You got a chance to speak to some of the jurors after. Yes, we did actually. Um, we spoke with a number of them, got together. They wanted to process it with us. You know, we forget that we lived with this case because it went to two trials. We lived with mm-hmm. it for six years. These sure. jurors were, were in a vacuum. You know, they got two weeks of it. Mm-hmm. And I think there were some of them that really just needed to process it. And so they asked if we could get together with some of them and talk. And I loved the opportunity to do that. And it really impacted their lives as well. Oh, I bet. I bet that had to be something else. And, and, you know, the other thing I think we forget sometimes is, you know, we go through jury selection. You pick your jurors. You pick your alternates. Each side gets their selections. These are people, man. These are just folks that, you know, have like normal corporate jobs or whatever they do. They're not used to seeing this. There's an effect that this has on some of those people. So I can totally understand like afterwards, they just, hey, can we have a conversation? Because I got to reconcile some of this in my head. Holy crap. I don't, I've never seen anything like this. Do you see that from time to time? Yes. And and this one in particular, and and I think a lot of it had to do with Ryan and Ryan's potential that he had, Ryan's family, the people that sat there day after day, just so that Ryan would know that those people were there to him. Um, I had a couple of them tell me that, you know, when they laid down at night to go to bed, all they could do was see Ryan um, yeah. as he laid on the floor of his condo. You know, those are the things that stick with them. And, and um, this, these jurors took their responsibility very seriously, but it impacted them. And I run into a bunch of them. You know, our community is, is fairly small and, um, you know, some of them know the same people that I know. And every time I see them, it, it's like, 
you know, we're much closer than you should have been with some mm-hmm. jurors just because of the shared experience that we went through. Yeah, I think it's a, you know, from for the people out there that have never served on a jury or people that are not either in, you know, your field or or the investigators. Um, I don't think I don't think the media or or people in general, I don't think we talk about how much a case like this can have an effect on a juror. They coming out of a, you know, you may have a mom of of a few children that gets selected for jury duty. She makes it through the selection process and boom, she's seated on a on this type of homicide jury. And the next thing you know, they're sitting there with a notepad listening to witness after witness talking about wound tracks and bullet wounds and this and that and the other thing and her actions and, you know, her comments. And I, I have to think that sometimes some of these people have a much better view of humanity until that day or that trial experience. And they walk out going, holy shit, man, what, what, what just happened? And I don't think so we as a society live, really think about it much. Yeah, they live in their bubble, which yeah. is great. That, is. I wish we could all go back into that. Yeah. But serving on a jury kind of uh, pops that bubble and, and you're exposed to things that you just didn't think existed. And this is in our own community, in your backyard, in your neighborhood. Uh, and it's amazing how many people I run into even now in our community uh, that said, hey, my friend was on that jury and, you know, they really had they really had a hard time with it. Yeah. Um you know, it's, it, it, it is, and, and they do take that job seriously. So it leaves a lasting imprint on them, changes their life, really. You know, I say a lot of times in the courses that we teach that, and this is just my humble opinion, serving on a jury like that may be the second greatest, in my opinion, civic duty you can do. The first for me, we're an all-volunteer military. You sign up and join our military, I think it's the greatest civic duty you can do. But serving on a jury you have to listen to everything and you are ultimately making the decision about somebody's freedom, maybe somebody's life. If it's a capital murder case and somebody's, you know, death penalty is on the table. That's not a little thing to have to deal with or handle if you are not a person that's in that world. I mean, you're being plucked out of, like you said, utopia and dropped in and say, all right, well, make the choice. They live or die based on what you heard. That's kind of, tr- that's, that's not an easy thing to do. Totally agree with you. And I don't think even when these jurors got picked that they really knew what they were getting involved in. I mean, we can tell them, hey, this is going to be a couple week trial. Um, But I don't think they understand the time really that was involved from, you know, 830 in the morning until sometimes six o'clock at night, nonstop. We didn't stop. We don't take breaks in between except for lunch. You know, we don't have dockets in between or days off. It is a straight two week trial. And, and, um, you know, that was really hard for them. And we even did individual jury selection. So they came in a couple of days before that. So they could be questioned about whether they were the right people to serve on this jury. So it was a long commitment for them. I wonder how many of them, well, you know, there's a joke. Most people try to get out of jury duty, right? Then you get to some people that really want to be on one. I wonder how many of them want to be on it and then get exposed to that and go, Oh man, I got to be careful what I, what I wish for. Holy crap. I wasn't ready for this. But the other thing about Shana is when they watch what she did and how she did it and the sequence of events, you know, one of the things that I hear people say sometimes when you hear about a case like this, they go, you know, we expect like a gang member to do things like this or, or a, a career criminal, a thug, you know, evil comes in all forms and she is not 
at first glance, the poster child for a violent person like this. I mean, she looks like, you know, the all-American kid. And then you find out she may be the most evil person you've ever seen. And that's absolutely true. And I think looking back at it, Shana Huber's relied on that her whole life to get what she wanted. You saw it in the video recording at the police station. You know, she would look up at the male police officers different than she looked up at the female police officer. Um, And I think she did that to the jurors, too. So in the trial, when she took the stand, I think in her mind, she was going to glance over at these jurors and she was going to be able to portray this young, innocent girl um, that could have never done anything so evil. Mm-hmm. That was why her video was so important that the jurors saw it at the beginning, because it showed a totally different side of her. That and her text messages and, um, you know, the stalking of Ryan, that showed a completely different version of Shana Huber's that she couldn't refute. And I noticed when she was testifying that a number of the jurors had a hard time even looking at her when she would make direct eye contact with them. It made them uncomfortable because they saw her differently and she could not repair it. And I think for Shana Hubers, that was probably the worst part of it is that she couldn't bat her eyes to the male jurors and have them see her as this beautiful young girl that needed their help. Oh yeah. I could see that. The the way she looked over at at me when I first got on the, on the witness stand was, I just said to Kyle was, was there was an evil, there was an evil in her eye. Um, oh yes. How important was it from a strategy standpoint, in this case and other cases, to have that co-counsel with you? In other words, somebody may question a certain witness and you may question a different one. How important is that to have that back and forth? In other words, maybe not hearing one person for two weeks. Well, I think it's very important. Um, you know, in, in Kyle and I, handle things kind of similarly in jury trials, but we are different. And there are different witnesses that Mm -hmm. respond better to each of us. And we knew that. And that went into our whole thought process. Who was going to question who? Um, and, And I do think that the jurors like to hear that. But let's be honest. There is no way that one person could have tried this case on their own. There was way too much evidence, way too much digital files to go through, you know, the text messages, the SMS text messages, the Facebook there, you know, we even struggled sometimes with just the two of us doing most of this work. It was overwhelming. It really turned out good though, because we were able to handle certain witnesses in different ways because of our different personalities. One of the things I brought up to people Prior to this, I did the other two episodes talking about crime scenes in general, like this particular crime scene. And then what I did in the second one was I got into Ryan Post and, and his injuries and what she, you know, what she did in her movement. This one, one of the things I wanted to talk about was how difficult it is for you sometimes to get ready. So I don't, and the behind the scenes look, I think is important because television, you and I both know television programs, they don't really give an accurate depiction of, definitely don't give an accurate depiction of law enforcement. And Sometimes the prosecution phase or the defense attorney phase, it's, it's a lot of drama for TV. How much work, time-wise, hour-wise, now changing your day leading up to this? Maybe the two weeks leading up. I mean, is it, it's a grind, isn't it? Well, uh, I, you know, this is my philosophy. When I walk into that courtroom, 
there needs to be no one more prepared than I am in my Tina's. Mm-hmm. That's that's just the rule that we live by. And and two weeks wouldn't even come close to prepping this. I think we spent about two months doing nothing but exclusively working on this. And we would come in in the morning. We'd sit in the conference room. Our conference room became a war room. We had um, post-it notes. We had note cards on a bulletin board. We would change the order of witnesses to see what flowed. We'd have um, you know, whiteboards all over the walls. We would change things, erase things, talk about issues, make lists of legal research we needed done. Two months. And it was, you know, the last month especially is when you really gear up, um, you know, and we all have our superstitious things that we do. Y- you know, I, I kind of do nothing but this. You know, I, I my poor family, you know, they don't <laughs> see me much. I work almost around the clock, come home, maybe, you know, take a shower and sleep and get up and do the thing the next day. There is so much work that goes into it. And, you know, those of us that are career prosecutors, we, we've done it. It's just, it's just part of the job. It's the behind the scene things that make everything look like they're smooth in court. And got- uh, everybody luckily is committed to that here in my office. Well, that I can, I can personally attest to. I've seen it. And, um, I, I, there has to be a, a level you know, it's, I don't want to say game time because it's not a game I, and I don't want to use that term wrong, but you know what I mean? It's like the night before you're getting ready and you say to yourself, all right, or do you say to yourself, all right, we're ready to go. Now we're ready. Well, um, usually it's not that. Usually I have a moment where I have a little bit of a breakdown, you know, just being <laughs> okay. honest, the, the, the pressure gets so much and I do start questioning myself and uh, usually, I, you know, I'm very fortunate and I know Kyle is the same way with our supportive families. You know, lots of times it's my mom, my Italian Catholic mom who says, don't worry, I'm praying a novena for you. You know, I, it's it's those yeah. things that you just kind of, you need and you rely on. And, um, you know, what helped us probably the most in this is that Ryan's family said to us right before we, I can remember going in before opening statements and saying, we have faith in you that you're going to do the best job that you can. Not that we know you're going to get a life sentence, right. but that we would do the best job that we could. And, and I think hearing that from Ryan's family kind of made it all okay. That, well, that's that kinda, they that's knew. Pump, that pumps you up. That's pumping me up right now. That, uh, uh, that, right. I, they, to hear that is like awesome. Right. Like right. They, of they course, you know, it. it made me tear up right as I'm walking sure. into the courtroom. But knowing that they had faith. And that they knew that they weren't expecting a specific outcome. They just were expecting us to do our best, which we promised them from the very beginning. Absolutely, that changes the way that you go in there. And they were there every day, every moment they were there. And it wasn't just Ryan's you know, parents and his siblings. It was his aunts, his uncles, his cousins, his friends. I mean, that courtroom was packed, you know, Howard, mm-hmm. how, how it was. And they were there just to support. And that was great to see. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I got to bring up a funny point. I remember coming down for the trial, the first trial and, um, staying at a nearby hotel and getting up that morning, getting ready, putting the suit on. I grabbed my backpack, slung it over my shoulder. I parked the car and I'm walking up to the courthouse Yes. and people are going to find this. I don't know if you remember me saying this to you, but I, I see all these news cameras and news trucks and, you know, from all over multiple, um, multiple networks. And I'm thinking to myself, wow. I wonder what's going on, you know, cause where I come from, we're outside of New York city. There's a lot of killing. There's a lot of murders. And I'm like, and one of the things I do when we get a case to look at as a consultant is 
I don't go into a lot of their background. I won't do a lot of open source media searches on these people. And the reason why, and I hope everybody that listens to this understands, I don't care who they are. I, I can't care who they are at that point. I have to follow physical evidence. I have to review what's been given to me. I don't even want statements at that point. And I remember walking in the courthouse and, and seeing you in the room and I go, Hey, what's going on? All the news is outside. And you look at me like, are you serious? And I go, seriously, what's going on? They go, this, this is what's going on. Don't you know who these people are? I go, no, I have no idea who they are. And I didn't, I did not. It wasn't until later that I started, you know, actually looking into, you know, I have to look at it like, and this sounds brutally cold and I don't want people to think I am brutally cold. A killed B. How did this happen? That's it. That's what I have to do. But that's why we like having you involved because that is your job. That yeah. that makes everything better. You, you're right. You don't care. You just want to look at the evidence. And that's why we need you in these yeah. types of trials. But for us, for us, no, I knew from the very beginning when I saw her, when I laid eyes on Shana Hubers and I saw Ryan Post and I said, this is going to be bigger because than we even imagined because they were both beautiful people. They yeah. were both smart. They both came from, you know, decent families. Ryan Poston's family was well known. And I remember thinking like, this is going to be bigger than we thought. It had elements of sex. It had elements, you know, of, of cheating. It had all of those things that the media wants to um, jump on. And, and even probably before you came to testify, I can remember saying to one of the reporters, the cameras would all be outside watching me walk in and normally I walk in in my flip flops because I bring my heels to put on when, mm -hmm. you know, later. And I'm like, seriously, guys, I'm walking in the same way I walked in yesterday. Could, yeah. is, is this really what you have to do? But I did earn some points from um, my son and my nieces because I guess somehow on Snapchat, I was on like one of the news, the news <laughs> things for the day my case was. So, you know, that earned me some points with them, but it was everywhere. I mean, we got calls from news outlets in the UK, um, yeah. you know, from, from all over the world, really. Yeah. When I got, when I finished, I remember walking off the, the witness stand, walking out. I mean, I, I went through that door and it makes that left into the lobby and yes. I got hit right there, but I think it was 20, 20 and 48 hours. They were there. And I'm like, I didn't know. I, I kind of felt a little stupid. I'm like, maybe I should have looked at who these people were before I did this. <laughs> but really I try to teach that to people. Like the whole thing of, of confirmation bias, con contextual bias, stay away from it. St you know, when you're, when you're an investigator and you're in, walking under that yellow tape, I, I, and I say this, this is going to sound corny. And some people that I know that listen to this will probably laugh, but it's like an honor to be able to go under that tape. There's, there's so few people in this country that have that privilege to go under that tape and, and, and have this responsibility that I look at it like this is for real. And you have to separate yourself from all those other things that can cloud your head and bias. And one of the things, because we consult on a lot of cases here and there in different states, I always say to them, send me your investigation reports, your autopsy report, blah, 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 all this. Don't send me the statements. I do not want to see them. I'll ask for them later if I need them. Be because it's like that game of telephone. You know, the, every, it, the story changes as everybody, as you hear different versions, your opinions, you're just a human being. It's going to get affected. So you have to try to eliminate that. And that's kind of why I walked in that day and said to you, hey, what's going on?
Right. Well, and, and I loved that. And I think that's what makes it so powerful for the jury is when you can look at them and say, no, I had no idea what anybody said in an interview because you just wanted to focus on the evidence because, and I will never forget when you said this. And I remember the jury jurors all writing it down because they do have their notepads. You said people lie physical evidence doesn't. And I remember they all looked down and started writing and I thought that's it. That's it right there. People yeah. lie, but the evidence doesn't. And I cannot tell you how many times we've used that in other trials. Yeah. It's so true. Then. It's yes. so true. It's like the only thing that doesn't, it's the, other, it's the only thing that doesn't lie. And, and you can, as long as it's handled well, and that's one of the things I went over with Kyle and I'll, I'll ask you about it too, is, you know, your guys, Highland Heights did a great job securing that scene. That scene was held together because I've seen cases where it's not and this was and i you know specifically i can point to the dining room table in this particular case and all the things that were on that table that probably at the time didn't seem like much in my analysis and what i had to do that was critical that that was undisturbed for the most part except where you know the victim ryan poston went face down on the table but all that other stuff in 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 place kind of blew up her story about fighting for a gun over a table. And, you know, she changed it a few times, but that, that was, um, was very good on their part. And that was probably a big help for you too. Yeah. And so for me, you know, being more, uh, you know, I'm not experienced like you are. I wasn't focused as much on the table, but I knew when I walked into that condominium that there had not been a fight. No. It was clearly a bachelor pad. It was yeah. a messy, but I've been on scenes where there have been fights and I remember looking at the bookshelf and the bookshelf that she said she was thrown into and nothing was disturbed. And it was so dusty, um, as most probably bachelor pads are, yeah. you know, that if anything would have shifted, you would have seen it immediately, you know, and, and that's why I needed to rely on you for your expertise about the table, because that table became so important after the first time we talked to you. And mm -hmm. I totally looked at that differently from that point on. Yeah. The other thing we talk about a lot with investigators is pay attention to your autopsy reports. The autopsy report is such a critical piece of evidence and a, a critical, uh, it's critical data to analyze from the standpoint of what went on. And if you have a good medical examiner, man, that is, that's just a home run in, in a jurisdiction. If the medical examiner is really on point really up to speed and, and writes a good report. A lot of them know what they're talking about. A lot of them can explain it. Some of them don't write great reports. Some of them do. And if you get a really good one, it'll walk you through the whole dance. And I say the dance, I mean the choreography of the sequence of events. You have to, you have to do that. One of the things we always say is in a shooting, the muzzle has to present itself to the target and the target has to present itself to the muzzle. And if you keep that in mind and you, and you can go to that autopsy report and look where the wounds are and the wound tracks, it tells you almost everything you need to know. And in this case, that happened very, very clearly. It did. So when you take the medical examiner's report and you combine that with your analysis of what you saw on that table, how Ryan ended up on the floor, we were able to sequence those bullets, which typically... Yeah. You're not able to do that in that type of a scenario, but there were only so many ways that mm -hmm. Ryan Poston could have been shot by Shana Hubers. Yeah. And, you know, the, the void on mm -hmm. Ryan's pants, 
was yep. extremely important. Um, so you combine that with then the shots that came about later, you know, he, he could have only been shot in, in one way. And yeah. I think taking those two and putting them together allowed us to show the jury step by step what Shayna Hubers did in those last couple of minutes of Ryan Poston's life. Yeah. And, and what she did was horrible. I mean, there's a moment in all these cases that we look at, <clears throat> and I should probably explain this to people real quick, because some, pe- some people might say, well, why aren't the investigators doing this right away? Well, it's hard. They have other cases. There's a caseload, case management, things are going on. Sometimes when you can sit, and when you become a consultant, an expert consultant, you, you get the luxury of sitting and reviewing this at your speed, not waiting for the next call to come in, not waiting to have to run out the door. And you have the luxury of taking a different look at it and, and then stepping away, coming back and looking at it again. And um, one of the things that we, we always have is this kind of, uh, how I call it, like a, an aha moment where you sit back in the chair and you go, aha, there it is, right there, right there. And the thing in this case was her movement. Her movement and the physical evidence that talked about her movement destroyed her. I mean, in, destroyed, in, in addition yes. to all the other things that she did. But. Well, it destroyed her because, because of this simple fact from a, from a legal perspective. Mm-hmm. It took away her argument of self-defense. Completely. Her movement took away her whole defense. And yeah. then we can throw all that other fluff in there and, and yeah. show her out to be the true evil murderer that, that she is. Um, you know, I mean, I don't care how pretty she is. She is evil. And she has proven that over and over and over again. Um, You know, being able to show her moving shows her in control of the weapon, of the scene, and of any exit. I know that's one thing that, that, you know, people don't have to retreat. I understand that. But if you're trying to say that you were so scared and you had no other option, that's just not true in this case. Yeah, It's not true for Shana Hubers. Yeah, her her movement was was just uh, completely aggressive, and the and the big thing is her like you said her control. She's in control of the entire thing, the entire thing. The other thing we talk about is is the speed at which at which bullets hit people. The general public's perception of a gunfight is television. It's anything yes. from an old western to a modern day uh, Matrix or whatever you want to call it, and they think they know what's going to happen and. You know, the bullet flies and, and they don't think much about how fast it flies. But when you, you know, you get struck in the head or in the body with a piece of lead moving at, you know, seven, 800 miles an hour, it's kind of a, it's debilitating, it, if, if not immediately fatal. And when you start to explain that to jurors, um, one of the things I like to do is I like to have the opportunity to, I don't want to sit there and preach to them, but I want to just, I'm about to, you're about to ask a question of me as a witness. That's an important point. And I think in just saying, saying yes or no, we have to explain it to them. Like, look, okay, the bullet's moving at so many feet per second. Well, that doesn't resonate with them. Miles per hour does. Yes. So you change that to miles per hour and you can almost see their face go, huh, whoa, holy cow. That's when you're driving the point home. And that's one of the hardest parts, I think, of your job. Uh, I say, uh, you know, in the first episode when we talk about bringing you guys on, I say, they have to be the, contu- the conductor of this orchestra. There's so many pieces. And every piece that we put up, how do we present it? And educating the jury is a big part of it. Don't just tell them. They don't want to be told. They want to be taught. 
And if you can teach them and they believe it and understand it, they're, I think they're far more likely to believe you. So I was always taught, you know, because I, I quite frankly, I never wanted to be a lawyer. I mm-hmm. actually, my background is in journalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was always taught that you speak to people or you write to people or you pre- present a story to people like you're talking to somebody with an eighth grade education because mm-hmm. you do not know what people's backgrounds are. It's true. And you don't want to offend somebody and talk over them, but you also don't want to talk to to you know, dumb it down too much. Mm-hmm. So when you speak to somebody, maybe like you're explaining it to, I don't know, freshmen in high school or, you know, eighth, eighth graders, ninth, 10th graders, you know, that's always the simpler way. So you do have to do that. You have to convert it. I always talk to police officers about, about please do not use copies. Do not, you know, and I don't want to use mm-hmm. legalese. I don't want to use those terms. Yeah, I don't want to say that somebody gave chase. Hey, you took off after him. Let's just talk normal in a way that we can all understand. Um, And I think that's one of the great things that happened in this case is, you know, whether it was the police officers or you as the expert witness, or even Kyle and myself, when we were addressing the jury, we tried to just present it as plainly as we could. We didn't need to add all that. We didn't need to add those extra words. You know, it, it just is what it is. And, you know, thankfully for us, Shana Hubers made that a little bit easier for us to be able to show the evil that took place in that condominium. Oh yeah. She, she did. She made that pretty easy. I got to ask you about this. You're gearing up to cross her, cross examine her. Um, how did that, how did your preparation for that come along? So we were preparing for that from the moment we found out that there was going to be a second trial. Uh, we knew that with the first trial, how unhappy Shana was with the result and with what her attorney did. So we knew there was no way she was going to give up the opportunity in the second trial to to not take the stand. That was not going to happen. Mm-hmm. She was going to testify. So we started preparing for it immediately. And And I think one of the things that helped us was to realize that no matter what Shana said, we could refute it. We could refute it with her own words because Shana lived her life on her social media. Everything that happened was documented and we had all of that. So basically we started one day just taking all of her text messages and dividing them up into categories, whether it was the relationship or the roller coaster of a relationship, which is how I like to see it, the ups and downs, whether it was the breakups whether it was her lies about where she was and what she was doing and who she was with, whether it was about their sexual relationship and who was the aggressor, which in this case, it was Shana Hubers, not Ryan Poston, whether it was about her breaking into his condo and just showing up unannounced. We had text messages to show it. And we knew she was going to testify, but I'm not going to lie. When they called her immediately, when the defense started, I think she, I think they called one very short witness who basically didn't really give anything. Um, I don't know if I can explain what physically happens <laughs> to you as a prosecutor when right. they say that. Yeah. Um, I don't even think nausea is the right word. I mean, literally, I felt like my stomach just dropped. Yeah. Just because this is what I'd been waiting for for so long. And here it was. And, and I can remember Anytime. leaning over. Leaning over to Kyle and saying, um, I don't know, am I allowed to cuss? I, I, <laughs> I, I said, 
everybody in the effing office stays all night. Because I knew that we could drag out the direct long enough to get us to the end of the day. And then I would have overnight to prepare. So basically it was all hands on deck. And, and, you know, we spent the entire night prepping for the cross-examination. See, I love that because that's the part that that's behind the scenes things that the people in general across this country, your constituents there uh, in particular, they don't see that. They don't see the nerves in your stomach. They don't see, all right, listen, we got a job to do. There's a family who's been devastated um, that, that is looking for justice and we're going to get a crack at her tomorrow. And we only got one shot. We got to make this happen right now. So everybody, all hands on deck. Let's go. Let's get, let's, let's grind and let's be ready. And I got to tell you, I want to, I want to talk a little, <laughs> a little bit about your cross okay. because you, uh, I did get a chance to see some of it on video. Yes. Um, I loved, you are very quick with your responses and I forget how you framed the first question. Let's talk about the night. And she goes, which night? And you go, how about let's starting with the night you pump six bullets into him? And her face just, it was exactly what was needed at exactly the precise time it was needed because she got pissed. And she then did get was, pissed. Yeah, yes. you lit her ass up after that because, and now it was now it was two it was two ladies having a having a, a back and forth. It's like she forgot everything that was around her, and she just you just you just tore into her. Well, I don't think I would have given up the opportunity to cross examine her because I had been waiting on that for a mm-hmm. long time. But we did have a discussion. Mm-hmm. You know, who's better? Who's better to do this? Uh-huh. Not as who's better in trial. But who would really aggravate her the oh. most? Yeah, you made And, <laughs> you know, Kyle, Kyle and I are both pretty aggressive. Mm-hmm. Um, and we ran the risk of Kyle looking like he could be beating up on her. And, yeah. and we certainly didn't want that. So it, it was good that I probably wasn't going to let him do it anyway, because I thought I thought it worked out better. And boy, I mean, we knew that she did not like me from the very beginning. That was painfully obvious. Um, but at that moment, and I knew that there were times that I could come back at her like that, but there were other times where I had to step back and it was really hard. I was biting my tongue a little bit each time I had to call her Miss Hubers. Yeah. That's that's certainly not not what I wanted. No, but it's good though, because it kind of just, it, it sets her up for the other one. Like, and you got into her, uh, you know, other relationships and, you know, the sex life thing and, and her, her outbursts were just, you know, her lawyer, I'd hate to be her attorney because he's probably sitting there with his head in his hand going, Jesus, can she just shut up? Like she, her answers about how many people she'd been with during that month and the yes. way she, it wasn't, it wasn't the answer. It was how she, well, it was the answer and how she answered it. It was this antagonistic kind of F you to you and going back and forth. It's like, she forgot there's 12 people to her right that are going to decide her fate. And she just kind of dismissed them and she was just pissed at you. And it was literally perfect. Yes. And I was a little surprised that she wasn't more theatrical, Mm -hmm. Uh, not with me, but more on her direct examination. You know, she'd had six years to prepare for this too. I expected more. I expected tears. I expected, you know, drama. And, and, and it really, it really wasn't there. Um, But one of the things that we found as well is that I got her into a a spot where she knew that we had text messages for everything. I, I even think we might have brought a printer 
into the courtroom and on her direct examination, if she would say something and we knew it was different, we kind of hit print. Now, we weren't necessarily printing anything, but, you know, it made this noise oh, like we were. Yeah. It, and and I think she thought, oh, shit. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, it's I, okay. Oh. <laughs> it's, it's all good. They've heard okay. me before. It, all right. So that she's like, they just found something. Yeah. And so that kind of worked with worked against her as well. And then she was worried what it was that we were printing out. So as I was confronting her about so many of these lies and I'd say, pull out a piece of paper. Well, isn't it true that you told your friend this? And she got into a spot where she was basically just agreeing with me because she assumed if I was asking it, that I had a text message to prove it. Yeah. And for us, that was great. I love the noise. I love the the whole concept of that little auditory kind of psychological warfare thing. Yeah. The printer make noise. Okay, let's go. Yes. And then I would grab it and I'd put it into my pile because I had this pile of, of these files that were just stacked up with different categories of what I was going to hit on. Yeah. So we just added to the list, whether it was actually what we were looking for or not. I, I, I think part of it was the psychological impact that it was having on her. Now, in the first trial, how long did the jury deliberate? Oh, goodness. I don't know if I even remember. You know, you try to block out some of those things because for prosecutors... It wasn't days or anything, right? That, oh, no, 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 not at all. No, it was, I mean, it was hours, yeah. but I don't remember exactly how long it was. I remember they took longer deciding sentencing mm-hmm. than they did deciding guilt, you know, but, but for, from a prosecutor perspective, that time that you are waiting for the initial verdict, yeah, it's excruciating. Yeah, it, sure. it, it, There is no way. There is no way to describe it. Um, you know, you don't want anybody to talk to you. You don't want to be around the family. And then you second guess every decision that you make. As as the minutes tick by, you know, and, and this jury wasn't out very long um, at all for a two-week trial. But each second that they're out, you question what you did. Sure. So that that time is kind of hard for me to even remember because it seems like it was forever. How often when you're, when you're either doing direct or cross, how often do you look over at the jury just to try to get a facial expression or a, anything? I do that more on cross-examination. You know, part of it is reading what the jury's um, picking up. Yeah. And I know that there were a couple of things that, that I said to Shana that I presented directly to the jury. Um, and, and one of them was that, well, how about the night you put six bullets in them? Why don't we start there with that night? Um, you know, it's really important. The other, the other part that I remember specifically looking at the jury was when I talked about all the people that Shana Huber's lied to. You know, she lied to Ryan Poston. She lied to her mother. She lied to her professors. She lied to her friends. She lied to her, um, her, her, uh, her, fellow students. Anytime there was something that Shana didn't want or that Shana wanted attention, she approached it with a lie. And then we saw that she lied to her expert witness. So there were things that she told their expert mental health witness that were not true, that were Mm. refuted. And so as I'm pointing out all the important people in her life that she lied to, you lied, you lied, you lied, you lied. Each time I said that word lie, I'm looking at the jury. Yeah. Because I want to make sure that they understand 
You, she lies to everybody important in her life. Why would this jury expect anything different? It's true. Why and now? I, I try to tell everybody, you know, when we teach the shooting classes and stuff. I say, look, when you're up there testifying, you're there. Look, the, the, the prosecutor knows the truth. The defense attorney actually already knows the truth. And the suspect obviously knows the truth. The, really, the people you're trying to convince is a jury. So pay attention to them. Don't ignore everybody else, certainly. But pay attention, and especially if you get the chance to explain something. I'll give you uh, like an example in one of the recent trials. We talked about gunshot residue. And a lot of people have no idea what it, what it means and where it comes from and how it works. And I say, if you get the opportunity to explain something, look at them and speak to them. Because that's who you're actually speaking to. You know, certainly go back and forth to whoever asked you the question out of respect. But the other thing it's going to do is it's going to let you understand or let you see whether they understand. Some of them will start to nod their head, like in the affirmative. You know, uh-huh, yeah, and you see, and you see, and you're like, all right, they're getting it, and that's it, and that's an important part in delivering that message. So many, especially in law enforcement, so many people get up there as a fact witness, and it's yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. Okay, no further questions, and they dart out the room and they're like, oh, thank God that's over. No, no, no. This is your chance. This is where you deliver. This is the final act. Embrace it. And, and be- being able, yes, being able to engage yes, with the jurors, you know, they think there's this wall that divides them. And I get that we can't talk directly to them, but you can still right. engage with them. Sure. And jurors feel much more comfort when you are connecting with them and engaging with them, just simply looking at them. You know, I, I've told officers before, turn your head, talk to them, act sure. like you're sitting at the bar with your buddies. How would you explain the situation to them? Sure. Explain it to the jury that way. They want to see your eyes looking at them. They want to feel that connection. And it adds trust Without when a you doubt. are looking at them. You relate to them. They relate to you. It, there, that is one of the most powerful things in being a good witness, I think, is exactly what you just said. Engage the jury. Be humble. If you get a chance to explain something to, to them, take it. Um, I think they appreciate it. I think they, they're, you know, they're all sitting there going, all right, I don't know anything about this. And then you teach them something about it or you, you give them a little bit of information. And they're like, okay. And, and they, I, you can almost see the appreciation on their face. Like, all right, I get it. Thank you. And because ultimately they're making the tough call, not me. So right. I think it's important. Yeah, the best that. witnesses are those that can do that. And, and, you know, I know which one of my officers, you know, I have 13 different police jurisdictions in my county mm-hmm. and I know which officers are the best are, are the best for juries to hear from Yeah, because of the way that they present things. Right. Right. Now she gets sentenced. She gets found guilty and she gets sentenced, I believe 40 years. First time. First time was 40 years. Yes. What was her expression when she heard one, the guilty and two, the sentencing? You know, a lot of people ask me what, what her expression was with, with the guilt stage. And, and I have said this repeatedly. I, never look at the defendant Mm -hmm. um, in a case like this. My first thought and my first glance was to Ryan's mom. You know, I'm a mom Uh, myself. Nice. Um, I I cannot imagine looking at anybody else. But to see his mom breathe, really, for the first time, it seems like almost, you know, like there's this, you you can finally, like, take a breath. Right. Um, So my focus is always on, Ryan's mom. It has been on these two cases and most of my other trials. You know, I don't feel like the defendant deserves my attention at that moment. I agree. Um, but I did see her when she was sentenced. 
And, um, you know, I, I think that more than anything, what I saw on Shayna Huber's was almost disbelief. She was sort of in the stage of disbelief the entire time from the guilty verdict to the sentencing. Like, this can't happen. Like, I always get myself out of everything. I'm always able to lie my way out of it. I'm always able to con people and manipulate people and work my way back in. What has happened now? <laughs> a, a total disbelief that finally she was held accountable for something that she had done wrong in her life. Because this wasn't the first thing she did wrong. Sure. And well, the other thing too, is you hear that number. Four yes. zero, 40 years. And you know, if you're sitting in that chair, you got to say, well, I'm so such and such an age. That'll make me... Mm-hmm. And then it just, boom, reality slaps you right across the mouth. It's over. Now, I got to bring this up. What happened with the second trial? Like, what, 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 what went on? Because I remember when you guys called me, says, hey, we're going to do this again. And I was like, what? <laughs> um, so it turns out that Shana had hired an attorney mm-hmm. to deal with her appeal. And when the attorney was watching um, the trial tape, she recognized one of the individuals on the jury as being a former client. It's wow. it's really a sad state, the law in Kentucky, that an individual who has a felony conviction cannot serve on a jury. Now, this conviction was for not paying child support. Um, so a lot of people don't realize that in Kentucky, when it gets to a certain point, that can be a crime. It can be a felony. Our juror did not realize that he had been convicted of a felony. In fact, he told us that... Um, he had purchased guns before, which, you know, you shouldn't be able to if you have a felony. He mm-hmm. had volunteered at his grandchild's school, which, of course, you shouldn't be able to do if you have a felony on your record. And it was from so long ago that it didn't necessarily come up in all of the background checks. I think it might have been from like 1990 or um, it, it was a significant, significantly older conviction. Mm-hmm. But the law in Kentucky is black and white. There is no questioning about, well, did the fact that this person had a conviction, did that add them, did that make them biased against one side or the other? You know, and our argument was, well, of course he wasn't biased because he didn't even know he had the conviction. Yeah. It, It just didn't exist. Federal law in the federal courts, you're allowed to look at was somebody biased, but not in Kentucky. So we knew it was going to be something that we tried over. And, you know, again, I go back to, The only way we were able to get through this was because of Ryan's family. And, you know, here I am devastated, Um, not even able to get my thoughts together. And I call Ryan's mom and I remember her saying, well, that's okay because this time we'll get life. I mean, you know, that's the support that we had behind us. That's okay. We'll do it again. You'll do it again and we'll get life this time. Yeah. And you did. We did. Yes. Yes. You know, and it wasn't the same trial. We approached it from a brand new perspective. Everything had to be looked at differently. Everything had to be looked at with fresh eyes. You Mm -hmm. couldn't just go in there and say, all right, here's what we did the first time. I'm going to play the recording. You had to approach it differently. Yeah. Yeah. And it, uh, I, I, I just remember the call. Hey, you're not, I think it was Kyle that called me. He goes, Hey, dude, you're not going to believe this, but we got to try Shane Huber's again. I was like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? What happened? And then uh, I remember immediately saying, okay, let's go. Let's do it. Whatever we got to do. Um, so that was, that was very interesting. How, how, is, how 
today, I'm, I'm sure you've probably kept in touch at some point. How is Ryan Poston's family doing today? Well, yes, I do keep in touch with them. Um, you know, I speak to them frequently, especially his dad, Jay. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, he calls in to check. It, you know, it's so it's so weird that they call in to check on us sometimes and we call in to check on them. You know, um, Ryan's mom has has a couple of grandbabies now. Wow. Um, you know, I, I think one of them was born in between the first trial and the second trial. And it was a little boy. And, you know, I think it's just kind of that that circle of life that you see. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, of course, nothing can ever change what happened. And his family is still devastated by it. But they, they've learned their new norm. I think they've kind of gotten into the groove of their new norm. And we will forever be connected to them. I mean, we share something with Ryan's family that most people don't understand. You know, sure. the years and the days and the time that we have spent together, you, you are connected. Oh, I'd imagine forever be. I'd imagine, you know, from their point, they're looking at you and saying, she's fighting for us. She's fighting for, you know, our son, his memory, justice and, and our closure. If they, I hate to use that term because it's, you know, I don't even know if it's exists closure, but you know, you're up there, you're up there on the front line, giving it all for, for them. And, and, uh, I do remember them when I was down there and I certainly hope they're doing well. And if you do get a chance to speak to them again, please, you know, tell them I said, hello, and I hope they're doing well. I, I will. And, you know, you do mention closure and, and I think closure is different for different people. And what I look at as, you know, the wound that is caused in these people's lives from this horrific crime, from, from, you know, the murder of Ryan Poston, it is that it's a wound and it's an open wound. And each mm-hmm. time you go back to court, each time there's a delay, each time there's, there's motions, it's like you're ripping a bandaid off of that mm-hmm. wound and opening it up again. And, you know, you, you get through the first trial and then suddenly you got to do this again. So the idea of closure after that second trial and after we got life it, is this, it's not closure on their loss but it allows them to close one portion of their grieving process and move on to the next. It's kind of like the physical wound is starting to heal. Now we've got to start dealing with the emotional wounds that are left by Ryan's loss. And and that's that's kind of how I look at closure for that. That's a really good way of explaining it. Actually. It really is because that I, I could tell you seeing other families at trials, um, where I've testified and you can just see, I could not imagine sitting there going through something like that as a family member. I couldn't imagine it. I mean, I do it from a different angle. You do it from a different angle. It's our job, but I couldn't imagine it. So, I mean, they were some, they, that was a very strong, strong family, strong family. I spoke to the father Jay once after the trial and um, what a super nice guy. I mean, you know, it's the other thing I can, you know, Kentucky is, and it's Northern Kentucky. Is since I still consider it the South, right? I'm from the Northeast. <laughs> And it's, you know, he, he actually called me up out of the blue and just, we talked and he says, listen, man, if you're ever down this way, I'd like to take you to dinner and just, you know, talk, which, which I just thought was a really classy thing for him to just call. I, Cause we don't get that too often, you know, it's done, you're on to the next and you don't hear from anybody. So I thought he was a, he was really a class act and um, a nice man. And I did get a chance to speak to him in the, in the foyer there. And, um, it was just uh, kind of interesting because we don't, in my position, we don't get really, you know, often get the chance to speak to family members. They hear us testify, but we don't get to really have a back and forth. Well, I know they were very grateful. They were grateful to the work that everybody did. And, and, and that's what made it 
okay to go through this a second time, you know, their mm-hmm. support and their gratitude. And they still are to this day. And, you know, somebody told me one time when I started prosecuting decades ago, they say, you know, eh, you may not want to get too close to the families, blah, blah, blah. And and I, I remember thinking like, how can I do my job if I'm not? Yeah. How can, you know, and at one point in time, Jay would call and check on my son because he knew he was getting ready to leave for college. You know, you did. We were, we were with them um, you know, for over six years. And so mm-hmm. they knew what was happening in our lives and we knew what was happening in their lives. And Kyle has a baby and Jay sends him a text congratulating him. You know, he, Kyle now lives close to Ryan's mom. Um, you mm-hmm. know, it's, it's this, it's this community that we live in and a bond that is created. And I, I don't think I would ever be able to do my job if I did not establish that kind of a relationship with my victims, you know, that well, there has to be that. It also helps you because whether you like it or not, you're exposed to this. You know, you're, we always talk to investigators and say, look, you think you're normal? You think you have a normal life? There's, there's there, some of your normal has been robbed. Um, and, and the things that you see and the things you have to talk about it, it, so it, it also is maybe somewhat cathartic for you. And it, it is for me when you get to, when you get to talk to somebody like that, cause it, it reminds you of the human element and, and it's not just a robotic thing that we do. And, um, I, I just think, uh, you know, your job there in addition to everything else you had to do, you're guiding those people, whether you want to or not. When I say guiding, you're, you're helping them through one of the worst moments of their life, the worst moment of their life. And, and they're looking for you for professional and emotional support and everything else. And that's, it's probably something when you, when you first became a prosecutor, you didn't realize maybe, or maybe you did that, wow, this is a big part of it, but you do, they rely, they're relying on you and you're walking them down a path of, of a very sad time in their life. Well, we met, we first met with Jay and Lisa and Peter, um, Ryan's parents. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it might have been the day after Mm -hmm. Ryan was murdered. And we sat with them in this in this small conference room at the Highland Heights Police Department, and 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 to say that they were in shock is is probably an understatement. But I can remember looking at them, and Jay brought his brother, who is an attorney in the area, so luckily he was there to kind of help help remind them of the things we talk about. And I remember I said to them, "You need to give me a minimum of three years. This is not going to be quick, and it's not going to be easy." Mm-hmm. And I also said that I will never make them promises that I cannot keep. So we try from the very beginning to set the stage of that this is a long, long haul. The process is not easy and there is no guarantees. Um, and, And I remember them specifically saying that they do remember that conversation and they were grateful because from that very first moment they knew they knew to just kind of let it play out and let it take its time. And we would eventually get to where we would need to be. Of course, I never thought it'd be closer to six years because of the second trial, Mm -hmm. but they knew and they knew that we would be there with them and we would fight every step of the way in Ryan's honor. And, you know, Ryan being an attorney, Ryan loved the idea of justice. And we kept that in our mind every Mm -hmm. step of the way. What is the justice that Ryan deserves? What is the justice that Ryan would fight for? And that's what we did. Yeah, that's awesome. I can, I will speak from experience when I say going down to your neck of the woods, because we've been involved in other matters down there with you. Uh, The people of your area in Newport are are, uh, 
very fortunate to have you as their Commonwealth attorney. And I say that not just as a, you know, blowing sunshine here. I, I, I testify around the country and I've seen uh, how things are done in different places. And I can tell you, you and your staff, um, you were professional, you were aggressive, you had what we call front sight focus. You were ready to go. Um, you asked all the right questions and I believe you made all the right decisions. And, uh, it was for me, it was actually a pleasure to have been in the position to help in such a, in such a horrible situation. But at the same time, it was a pleasure to be able to work with you guys because you were very, very professional. Well, uh, that's not what this is supposed to be about, but I can just say, I, I appreciate that. Um, I honestly feel grateful that I get the opportunity to do this. You know, none of us do this for the, (laughs) we certainly don't do it for the money. We can all make more money, but you do it for different reasons. And, and being able to see Ryan Poston's family, um, finally get the best that we could get them, which was a life sentence. You know, that, that's why we do it. And I appreciate that. And I, I am very fortunate that I had such amazing people working beside me. Mm-hmm. Um, each step of the way, you know, um, Kyle knew this case inside and out. Bill Birkenauer knew this case inside and out and the level of commitment. Um, even you, I mean, you know, you know, you went way above and beyond what you were getting paid to do. Um, you yeah. know, you helped us so much through this. And, and when you can have a witness that at the end of it, you say, oh my gosh, I learned so much from them. That's a great day. And we did. And we use your words all the time now in other cases. Oh, that's scary. My sisters, I have three sisters. They would, they would all say, no, 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 don't do that. Don't use his words. <laughs> they, I, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the chief. Um, yes. He sat there through that whole thing uh, at the table, helping in any way he could. He was, you don't see that from too many chiefs. I can tell you that right now. He was, he was, he was ready to go, it seemed, all, all, the whole time. So kudos to him. Yes, he started off as a detective. Yeah, he was a detective at the beginning of this and then Mm -hmm. became chief. But the other things that you don't see behind the scenes is sometimes we're working on a Saturday night. We're here at the office. We're doing something. It's eight o'clock at night. Any minute we called him um, and we needed something, he dropped what he was doing. He, He had as much of a level of commitment as any of us. And I think that's why we were able to accomplish what we did. Yeah, that that was. I've seen a lot of chiefs, and they get to the they get to the chief position, and it's you know we have people for this and we have people for that. He was he was right on the front line the whole way, and uh, you know kudos to him. Yes. But, uh, listen, I want to thank you for taking the time um, and talking about this because this is a part of a, you know this is an interesting case, but it's also the parts of the case, the prosecution, the preparation, the execution of it. A lot of people don't get to hear from people in your position on on the challenges and and the and the things that you have to go through to get ready to do it. And um, I really wanted to bring you guys on, not just because the case was interesting, but because of you guys. I, I, I really uh, had a lot of respect for the way you handled everything and the way you went right at everything, and it was good. And I know we're going to follow up now with uh, Kyle. We're going to talk about a little bit about that second trial and how it might have differed from the first. But I really wanted to thank you um, for taking the time to, to chat with us. Sure. Thank you. And um you know, hopefully we'll be able to work together again. Um, sure. Although that sounds kind of weird because I really don't want there to be another <laughs> know, homicide. But you know, it, it was a, it was a, it was definitely um, a good combination. And I think if if we ever get that chance again, I know that our victims would be in good hands. I'll be there. All right. All Thank right. You. Take care. 
Okay, we're back with Kyle Burns. And um, what I want to do, if it's okay with you, is I want to talk a little bit about the second trial. You were, you know, you've been involved in both of these up to your neck. And um, how did you go about preparing for the second round here? So the, uh, the second trial was going to be harder in a lot of ways. Um, you know, I don't, and I'm sure you touched on this with Michelle, I don't think anybody could have expected the first time around how prepared we were going to be. Mm-hmm. I don't think they had any idea the extent that we had gone through all that social media stuff that I mentioned earlier, those 55,000 messages, those thousands of pages of Facebook. I don't think anybody on the defense team anticipated just how organized and effective we were prepared to be at the first trial. You know, some of that element of surprise was gone. They knew what they were up against the second time. Um, They knew some of the things that we were going to emphasize, some of the things that we were going to really try to bring the jury's attention to. So when you're on notice of that, as defense counsel, you can try to start working on explanations, start working on mitigation, start working on your own kind of, we'll call it counterattacks to those things. So there's no doubt that the second trial was going to be harder. We, when when the case was overturned um, for the issue with the juror, we just knew there was no room for mistakes, that we had no room for error. We almost knew with the second trial, with essentially with our cards already on the table and them knowing how prepared we were going to be, we knew with that second trial that we had to perform almost flawlessly. And so when you ask how we went about preparing for it, it just, I don't think we've ever committed ourselves to something like we did those couple months. Right. Yeah. And, and you had a, you had a different, team of defense attorneys, correct? We did. We had a different team of defense attorneys. It was a different defense. On her second trial, she decided to go with a mental health defense. Specifically, she was alleging that she was acting under extreme emotional disturbance. In the state of Kentucky, if you commit a crime, specifically a homicide, while acting under extreme emotional disturbance, it reduces the crime that you're guilty of from murder to manslaughter in the first degree. Hmm. That's kind of what we felt like they were shooting for this time. I think they figured out pretty quickly with the first jury that no one's buying self-defense. No one's buying that she's innocent. No one's buying that she's a victim of domestic violence. So the second time around, they took the approach of, okay, well, maybe she's not a victim of domestic violence, but she does suffer from mental disease or defect. And with all the behaviors you saw in that video, the twirling, the dancing, the snapping, for somebody to believe that there is some sort of mental disease present with Shana Hubers isn't that big of a stretch. No. So we no, think they took that approach the second time of let's gain more credibility with the jury by not saying she's innocent, by not saying she acted in self-defense, but saying that there was something mentally wrong with her at the time that caused her to do this. And they also took another angle on that. They went way into her past. They alleged that she had endured a series of traumas including sexual abuse at the hands of people in her life growing up that essentially led her to this point or led her to have this propensity to undergo this extreme emotional disturbance at the time she killed Ryan. So in my, in my opinion, it was time, it was kind of a double pronged attack. They went for the sympathy angle and then they also went for the mental disease or defect angle. Right. So because it was a totally different defense, we had to prepare completely differently. It was no longer about showing that she wasn't a victim of domestic violence because no one believed that from the moment she called 911. No one believed that it was about showing that in no way 
was she acting under extreme emotional disturbance, that everything she did to Ryan on October 12, 2012 was a conscious, intentional decision. Because I should probably elaborate a little bit. Extreme emotional disturbance, um, if I had to sum up for people what it means under Kentucky law, is that basically your body is acting independent of your mind. You're on autopilot. Um, the example I've heard before, it's kind of like when you drive somewhere and you're daydreaming, something's going on in your life, and you look up and you're home. You don't remember turning right. You don't remember turning left. You don't remember coming down your street, but your your body just took you there, essentially mm -hmm. through muscle memory or acting subconsciously. That's kind of how people describe ex extreme emotional disturbance is your body is doing things that you're not choosing for it to do. And that's a very simplified version of it. But so to we had to prove to the jury the second time around that these were conscious decisions she made and that everything she did to Ryan was an intentional act. So that's how we had to approach it. I guess, I guess part of that would be going back to her texts, going back to her communications in that 18 month period. It's it gotta be harder for them to fight that when, when her uh, erratic kind of behavior, it's not, it's not just in that moment. This is, this has been laid out over a long period of time. How she's irrational. Mm -hmm. That would, well, I mean, is well, that something you look at and say this works in your favor? Absolutely. And one of the things that I'll, we'll come back to those phones and those texts. She's asking this jury to believe that she had endured this series of traumas at some point in her life, some as a child, some as an adolescent, that basically left her prone to this. We'll call it snapping. I think that's kind of the common term um, when she committed this murder. What they couldn't have anticipated or they probably weren't prepared for is that this is a girl who alleges traumatic experiences left and right, especially when there's an opportunity for her to gain from it. Anytime Ryan would pull away from her, she would tell him something happened. She was in a car accident. She was hospitalized with heart issues. Someone tried to sexually assault her. Someone got physically aggressive with her. A professor followed her to her car. A stranger broke into her apartment. She alleged no less than 20, 30 traumatic experiences to Ryan. All at the times when he was ignoring her. Hmm. All at the times when he was attempting to distance himself from her. Anytime she wasn't getting the level of attention from him that she wanted or that she sensed that maybe he was starting to distance himself from the relationship, she would allege that something like this occurred, sometimes multiple in a day. Wow. And because we could find no corroboration anywhere, she told no one else in her life about these things. There were no police reports. There was no evidence. There was no pictures. She didn't share it with any other friends that these things were happening. We knew they weren't true. So from the outset, they had to combat that that this is somebody who alleges trauma when it has an opportunity to benefit her. And we could prove that. That's, yeah, I, you know, that's another thing people don't understand. I was talking to Michelle about, you know, the behind the scenes, the difficulties you have. People don't get that. You know, it's hard to put on a trial. Not to do it all over again with a different, like you said, the element of surprise being gone, a new strategy against you, you know, to fight against. That's not an easy thing to do. And uh, I give you guys credit for, for putting it together and, and going after it again. Um, well, and you know, we, we don't have an option. You know, no, at the end of yeah. the day, whether it's the first trial or the fifth, Ryan Poston was murdered. And there's yep. a family sitting in their dining room with an empty chair on Christmas and Thanksgiving. It's a great so way to put it. it. Most definitely, it was harder the second time around. But at some point, this job isn't about us. Mm -hmm. And we just have to focus on that and push forward.
Yeah. No, I hear you. That's pretty awesome. Now, as you got in, you guys um, got geared up for the second trial. Was there as much uh, media coverage the second time around? Uh, to some extent, I think there was more. I think yeah. the media, you know, early on, there was some media coverage because they were, you know, they were young, attractive people. He was local. He was successful. I think there was interest very locally early on. I think as the first case progressed, Shana's peculiar, strange behavior um, was sensational enough that it started getting some national attention. You know, the nose job killer, all that type of stuff. Then you add the whole wrinkle about the juror and her getting her new trial. I think that just kind of fueled the interest a little bit. And then when we rolled around to the second trial, I think the media attention was probably higher than the first. It wasn't a situation where people lost interest. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when your witnesses, as you selected your witnesses for the second trial, a lot of the same or very much so, um, very much so the same witnesses. There were a couple different ones. There was a girl, um, who had encountered Shana not long before the murder. And I mean like an hour before at the Kenwood mall. And it wasn't until she was watching one of the crime shows. I don't know if it was 48 hours or snapped. She was with neighbors at a party and one of the, and one of the crime shows was on and in watching it, she realized that she had encountered Shana on the night of the murder and Shana had expressed frustration. And I think she even characterized it as rage. She described her as hysterical that Ryan had a date with another girl that he was essentially ending the relationship. And, you know, she was making comments to the extent of, I just want to kill him. Now, I don't think anybody necessarily considers that a legitimate threat right. as much as just venting rage. But what was very important about that is that Shana has always alleged that Ryan was not ending this relationship that night and that she did not know that he had lined up a date with another girl that he was going on that weekend and that she never knew that. This girl who was working at the makeup counter at the Kenwood Dillard's came forward and says that she was there and she heard it and she saw her and she was hysterical. And I think our timeline worked out a way that that was probably only about an hour before she killed him. She wow. drove from that makeup counter to his apartment and within 15, 20 minutes he was dead. So she was new the second time around because I think she's some, a girl who did not realize that she was involved in this case until she saw the media attention. What, um, how about, see, so between the first one and the second one, you have some time with her now incarcerated. How much, uh, what went on or conversations or anything within her initial incarceration came into play? She oh, talk she, in jail? She does. Absolutely. Are you talking between her original arrest and the first trial or between the two trials? Between the two trials. You know, she, absolutely. This is, she, as you've mentioned, it's somebody that she can't help but talk. Mm -hmm. She talks to her cellmates. She talks to the guards. She talks on the phone all day, every day. You know, it's a full-time job trying to keep up with everybody that she talks to, everyone she discusses the case with. And at some point, you just have to prioritize and decide when it's worth your time and when to focus your attention elsewhere because she's never going to stop. Yeah. And, and, and then she also had kind of a bizarre relationship in jail i mean did she get married to another inmate or something she did she um at some point really not long before her second trial she somehow got connected in the jail they were in separate cells he um i believe was in an isolation cell she might have been in an isolation cell also through some anomaly in the phone system they were able to talk to each other within the jail and they decided to get married he and her mm-hmm 
And then, and when I, and when I say he, I'm talking biologically, I'm not trying to be disrespectful because the man, biological man that she married, I know, um, is a transgender woman. He identifies as a woman. And so his name is Richard, but I believe he goes by the name unique. It's Mm -hmm. been a a little rusty at this point. So Shana and unique got married not long before her second trial in a uh, jail cell ceremony. And the crazy thing about that, and the reason I bring it up is her bizarre behavior continues. I mean, it just, it, it's like she just shifted gears and just from a, from this, a free person doing crazy, bizarre things to a jail person, marry, literally marrying somebody that you cannot have contact with. You're in isolation through a phone. They allow you to have a ceremony. I mean, where's it going? What is it? To find out that it's a transgender woman. Uh, or maybe they did the transgender thing after, I don't really know the ins and outs of that whole thing and the timeline of that, to uh, a very quick jailhouse divorce from what I'm looking mm-hmm. at here. Yeah, it did not last long. I mean, if you want my personal opinion, I part of me thinks it was a spectacle. Part of yeah. me thinks it was her trying to drum up some publicity. Mm-hmm. Um, she loves, loves attention. So part of me thinks that was an aspect of it, trying to get a little more attention. And part of me thinks it was tactical, you know, because one of the bigger things we dealt with the second time around, you mentioned the media coverage, pretrial publicity was a major issue with her second trial. They wanted the trial moved out of Campbell County. In fact, they wanted the trial moved pretty far, a few hours away. Um, And they blamed the local media coverage as being the need for it. Of course, there hadn't been any media coverage in quite a while. So I will always believe, and this is just my personal opinion, that that whole stunt with the marriage was just an attempt by her to get back in the news, get people hearing her name, and give some more credibility to her abil- um, need to get her trial moved. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's it, it. That's the part I think that people um, don't see sometimes. That little behind the scenes kind of strategy, whether it's her being kind of crazy, or whether it's her attorneys gearing up and maybe getting her name back in the news, and we're getting, we're going to ramp up and we're going to get some attention and. And maybe we're going to talk about her childhood and and things of that nature. I, you know, when, when I was first in law enforcement and the first few times I testified, you know, you don't, you don't realize as a, as a lay witness, as a fact witness, you don't realize how much goes into the prosecutor's job of getting everything ready and all the other crap they have to deal with media hype, this and that things getting ramped up, microphones being shoved in your face as a, as a, a fact witness, you don't, you don't really experience any of that. Um, it wasn't until later that you start saying, wow, you know, there's a lot more shit that goes into this. The, the amount of litigation that goes into a murder trial, people would be astonished. You know, people wonder, why does it take so long? You know, she was granted a new trial in the summer of 2016. She didn't go to trial till the summer of 2018. People wonder why it takes so long. The amount of pretrial litigation that goes into it fills binders, binders yeah. and binders and binders that fill boxes all the different motions that the defense files, the prosecution files, that you have to litigate, argue before the judge, wait for decisions. The, once you actually walk through the door and there's a jury in the box, the road to get there is so much longer than I think most people would realize. Yeah. What was your key um, points of attack? Because this was a different, it wasn't self-defense. What was the key points that you, that you feel that you accomplished or things in there that you think, man, I wish we could have hammered this a little more. Anything in particular that comes to mind? Well, the second trial, Shana's words became more important than ever, because as I said, the whole under the law with extreme emotional disturbance, the whole goal of the second time, or not even the goal, the need under the law was to prove that this was a conscious decision. Each time she fired that shot into him, that she was acting volitionally, that she was acting 
of her own accord and not under the influence of some compelling force that essentially took over her, her body, put her on autopilot, as I mentioned. And that's why her words became so important. She said, I grabbed the gun. I did this. I pointed at him. I shot him. I wanted to put him out of his misery. I didn't want to listen to him. I wanted him to stop twitching. Shooting someone because you want them to stop twitching, that's a decision. Shooting mm -hmm. someone because you think they could reach for a gun, that's a decision. Everything that she described in that three-hour statement to the police was a series of decisions. This yes. wasn't a situation where she, you know, said, we were fighting, he chased me, he pushed me. I don't know what happened. I, next thing I know, I'm standing over him with the gun in my hand. I don't know what happened. This wasn't one of those situations. She described in painstaking detail, walking around the table. She even gestured with her hand for police, showing her which direction she walked, standing over him. She gestured with her hand as though she had a gun in it, acting out how she did this. She described, you know, it was never consistent. One minute he was standing over her and she's dodging his hands. The next minute he says she's pointing at her and she's grabbing the gun. It never added up. But the fact of the matter is she put herself in the driver's seat where she was making decisions. And that went exactly against the defense she was trying to raise the second time. Yeah. We, we talk about that as, as in shootings, whether it's police shootings or whatever it might be. We always talk about those three components, like, uh, you know, a lot of times it's the perception of something. It could be a perception of a threat, could be perception of an opportunity, if that's what their intentions are there to do. The second part is that cognitive decision, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And the third part is the execution, the actual pulling of the trigger. The interesting thing, as I mentioned it earlier, you have six shots. She went through that series, three, those three decision-making processes in each of those six shots. And that's something that I think is always important to talk about because, you know, it's not like, okay, this is her opportunity. She's angry. She's pissed. Whatever it is, she's going to do this. She makes that decision. I'm going to do it. And then she does it six different times. And that's, that's, that's an important component when you talk about shooting. And if you look at different shootings, different scenarios around the world, whatever it may be, those three things always can be identified, usually, um, almost always. And whether it's a defense thing or it's an aggressive thing, I don't care whether it's a military incident or a reactionary police shooting or something like that. You can always identify those three components. And when you break that down to people and explain to them, it's just, you know, those things don't just happen. Like you said, these are conscious decisions that are, are, are being done. Now, somebody can make the decision, I'm defending myself, I'm running away, or the, and they're firing while they run away. They may fire seven shots off quickly. but in, you can still break it down into, I'm defending myself, I'm doing this to get away. In her, in her position, there was two things I talked about earlier. Those three components, then the six for six. The six for six is something that people don't think about. I was okay? just about to ask you, what's, what's the stat you threw off in trial police shooting accuracy? 17 to 26%. 17 to 26% accuracy from people who are trained mm -hmm. to deliver but accurate fire. Yeah. But it's a reactionary event. See, hers mm -hmm. is, there's nothing about this that's reactionary. And that's a huge turning point. Now you're becoming the, the offensive. You're on offense. You're the aggressor. You're firing. You're moving. You're realigning your target. You're reacquiring your target picture. You're going through those three state phases again, and you're doing it again. To the point where when you think about it, now I, I don't have to tell you, she actually kind of bends down or kneels down to get that muzzle close when he's on the floor. And, you know, you mentioned before that, these six shots. It's so significant what the crime scene team was able to do, 
what you were able to do because not only is Ryan in a different place for some of these shots, you know, he's at the table, mm-hmm. he's upright. Then he's at the table, he's down. Then he's on his way down. Then he's on the floor. He's in different positions and different locations yep. for these six shots. So is she. Yeah. Where she was standing changed. Each of these six shots was a decision to murder Ryan. Absolutely. She didn't fire one and stop. She didn't fire two and stop. She fired three, four, five, six. And with that one, she told the police, I shot him somewhere I knew that it would kill him. Yeah. And she said she only stopped because once the sounds stopped, as in the sounds coming from Ryan, then she knew he was dead. Every time she pulled that trigger, it was a conscious decision to execute him. Absolutely. Not not an impulse decision. She closed that gap. As you mentioned earlier, she was getting closer. And when you talk about the movement, it's very important to distinguish between the two. So you have Ryan, you say Ryan Poston was moving. Ryan Poston was moving as a result of gunfire and or gravity. She was moving of her own volition. She was moving in a calculated, intentional way. He was not. So Mm -hmm. although they're both moving, their movements are completely different. He's being struck repeatedly and and in, in distress and falling to the ground where she is rounding that barrier, meaning the table and reacquiring her target, moving in closer. That's, yeah. that's, man, that's you know, Howard, you said something in one of the trials I'll never forget. And I heard Michelle say it earlier. We, we throw your lines out there all the time. Now, things that you taught us, things that we learned from you, evidence doesn't lie. People lie, things like yeah. that. But one thing you said, I don't remember which trial it was. You said she had complete control of the only firearm and the only egress from the apartment. The yeah. door was behind her, not behind Ryan. He had a wall behind him. Right. And she had the only firearm. She had the opportunity, if she felt threatened, if she felt like she was in danger, to hold him at gunpoint and back herself out of that apartment. Absolutely. But you said she had control, complete control of the only firearm and the only means of egress, and she chose to use the firearm. And move closer. Move and away move from the closer. egress. Yeah. Yeah, it was... It was uh... It was pretty telling. And I was saying to Michelle, there's those aha moments, you know, you sit back and you go, oh my God, there was a lot of that in this. It was like, I can't believe she said this. I can't believe she did this. Look what she's doing. Look how she's moving. You know, this is a, this is an assault. This is a, this is a ground assault. She's moving in. Um, like you would move in on an enemy for, for, for Pete's sake. It's, it was, it was very telling, you know? Well, and, and sadly, that's what it was. You know, I, yeah. I'll take this from the more emotional, dramatic aspect of it is he had become her enemy. Because yeah, that's really what you are with Shana Hubers. You're with her, you're against her. And he mm-hmm. was not giving her what she wanted. He was yeah. not caving to her demands, to her manipulation, like he had so many other times. And so at that point, he became an enemy, and this did become an attack. It yeah. was her, and I think in her mind, it was her vengeance. Now, I, I asked Michelle the same question, but I'm going to ask you at the end of the second trial. Did, did you happen to see any reaction from her when... when she was sentenced to life? No. Um, I will tell you the only, the only reaction we saw from her was when the jury returned before the verdict was read, meaning the guilty verdict. Mm-hmm. Um, at that point, she kind of laid down in her attorney's lap in bizarre fashion and kind of cried. And I, That was really the only emotion we saw from her. Once the life sentence was read, she was completely stoic because everything was Shane as a show. Yeah. And at that point, the show was over. She had nothing to gain from the jury. So there was no point in putting on the act anymore. That's she was interesting. completely emotionless when the life sentence was read. It was over. Yeah. 
Well, I, I could see that. I could see that. There was, nothing early... left to manip- there was nothing left to manipulate. Right. That last move of laying down on, on his on his lap, like, please take mercy on me. It, for just, yeah. She knew the guilt phase was over. That was her last ditched effort to try to get some sympathy for sentencing. Yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, you know, like I, I said to Michelle, I really want to thank you guys for being a you know, being willing to come on and talk about this case because it's an interesting case from a lot of different standpoints, from a shooting reconstruction standpoint, from strictly a bizarre behavior of a suspect standpoint. But more importantly, and I said this to her, I was really impressed at how you guys did this. I was also really impressed when when you had no choice but to do this again, how you all just you put your head down, man, you just went straight forward, let's go get it. And um I've testified around the country and I've uh I was very impressed the way you guys handle it. And it was a pleasure working with all of you guys under unfortunate circumstances. But, uh, well, I I appreciate, I appreciate that. And, you know, it's, this is not an easy job. It's often not always a rewarding job, but you know, there's, there are things over the years that stick out in your mind that I will never remember, or I will never forget. I mean, Ryan's little sister after the Mm -hmm. first trial, after the guilty verdict came back and it was time to call a sentencing witness, we put Ryan's middle sister up there. She delivered testimony that I don't think anybody who was in that room will ever be the same after hearing about what this had done to her, after what this had done to her family. And going into the second trial, we had that with us. We'll never forget seeing Katie up on that witness stand. We'll never forget the things she said. So that was an easy reminder on the long days, on the long nights, you know, putting our summer on hold to focus on this. It was an easy to reminder to remember that girl up there talking about the way that this had destroyed her family. And that's what you do in this line of work. And I'm sure that's what you do to some mm-hmm. extent in your line of work. Every crime, sure. how many crimes since you've been to now? You say close to a thousand. Um, yeah. yeah. You know, every, every, More crime than I scene, remember. <laughs> every crime scene is somebody's sibling, child, yeah, somebody's lost, friend, man. neighbor. And I think when you approach the, to some extent, we have to turn off our humanity. You really can't survive in this line of work if you carry all the emotion of it. But whenever you start to lose your motivation or start to lose your focus, I think reminding yourself that this is somebody, someone can push you forward. And that's exactly what we had to do with that second trial. But we were also very fortunate. Um, We had great investigators, absolutely great investigators with the Highland Heights Police Department, Mm -hmm. with the Campbell County Crime Scene Unit, gave us everything we needed responded to calls, texts at all hours, anything we asked of them, we got. And then frankly, we were very fortunate when we uh, got in contact with you. We absolutely needed someone that was going to take the physical evidence in this case and demonstrate, because the jury's not there. They've never been to this condo. They're trying to look at pictures and really piece it all together. And you're talking about lay people who don't really understand how this works often. And we needed somebody who was going to make this crime scene come alive for them and make them see how all the physical evidence pointed to her being a murderer. And that's exactly what you were able to do in both both trials. So we were very fortunate with the people that we had working with us both times around. Yeah, it was, well, it was a pleasure to be there under, under those circumstances are terrible, but I'm glad I I was able to help. Uh, I'm glad we were able to bring this out to people and kind of break it down a little bit in these episodes and just talk about, um, you know, what you see, how it's not like TV, you know, it's not like Hollywood, how you guys have a very difficult job of, of orchestrating this thing and putting it together and then to have to do it again. is just, it just kind of sucks, but you did it, man. I mean, you guys crushed it both times and she's where she's supposed to be right now. Uh, I believe that with all my heart and uh, my heart breaks for the post and family. 
and you may have covered it with Michelle. I'm, I'm assuming you know at this point her appeal was denied by yeah, the Kentucky Supreme I did, Court. I did not bring that up. I'm glad you did. Yeah, she's she's yeah. done, right? It's over. Last uh, last well, you know, it's in this line of work, it's never really over. They can always mm-hmm. file for some okay. type of relief, habeas corpus, and effective assistance of counsel, a hundred different things. But her appeal on the merits of her case was denied um, by the Supreme Court of Kentucky. They wrote a sixty-something page opinion, which is extremely long. Um, defending their position. And that opinion is now final. So she got her answer from the highest court in the state of Kentucky that she is guilty and her life sentence stands. Good. Good. Well, I tell you, man, um, you guys are top shelf. I, uh, I really, uh, enjoyed working with you all. And, um, I don't want to say, I hope we do it again. Like Michelle, (laughs) we we kind of joke. But if it happens, it happens, and we'll be the there. Feeling, the feeling's mutual. We uh, we never wish for more homicide cases, but I can yeah. tell you when we need a reconstructionist, I, I know who our first call is going to be to. Well, I appreciate it. Next time we're down there, we're going to have to sit down and sip a bourbon. <laughs> we can All definitely right. make that happen. All right, brother. Thanks for everything, man. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Take um, care. Bye-bye.